like we are live. Today is October 15th. It's uh, one of the many, I guess, 20th anniversary dates of the anthrax attacks. And so, of course, unlike 9-11, um, the anthrax attacks were spread out over the course of several days, um, at least public announcements about them made over the course of the month of October. Uh, so if I'm not mistaken, today on the 15th is the 20th anniversary of the anthrax letters uh, that were sent to members of Congress. Uh, including Tom Daschle, and basically the people that, um, if you're familiar with Graham McQueen's work uh, on the 2001 anthrax attacks, uh, were basically the people responsible for keeping uh, the Patriot Act from being steamrolled through Congress um, uh, under extreme pressure from Dick Cheney. Uh, they, of course, get uh, anthrax letters uh, 20 years ago today. Um, we're, uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm joined today by Robbie Martin. Hey, Robbie. Hey, Whitney. Uh, if you don't know Robbie, Robbie is uh, the main host, sometimes co-host of uh, the Media Roots podcast, which is very excellent and I highly recommend. Um, and also the producer of the uh, documentary series, A Very Heavy Agenda, which I believe has a sequel in the works, if, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Um, so uh, recently, Robbie has been doing some uh, new uh, investigative stuff into Anthrax for the, the 20th anniversary stuff. And of course, you're probably a lot of you watching are probably familiar with my work on the anthrax attacks. Um, last year, I didn't uh, <laughs> really do uh, much for the anniversary aside from this video where uh, both Robbie and I will be sharing some um, previously unpublished research um, about the anthrax attacks uh, that expands upon stuff we've both previously uh, published about those events um, separately. Um, but, um, so essentially today we're going to be going over, um, Robbie's going to be doing, um, uh, a partly visual presentation that I think is really compelling about the overlap, um, of events, uh, and people, um, in the state of Florida that is, um, uh, sem uh, relate, it really expands upon, I guess you could say Graham McQueen's work in, uh, in, in, in the, uh, in expanding upon the thesis that, um, the people responsible for the uh, September 11th, 2001 operation uh, were also involved with the uh, anthrax attacks, essentially uh, involving the same uh, network, uh, as it were. And I'll be focusing uh, in my part, I guess, uh, more on uh, Battelle uh, Memorial <laughs> Institute. If you're not familiar with them, uh, you should give them a look. Uh, but a lot of people, even at the time uh, that Bruce Ivins, the supposed lone wolf, uh, guy allegedly officially uh, responsible for the anthrax attacks. Um, a lot of uh, you know prominent people, including uh, Department of Justice uh, lawyers, uh, went after the FBI, saying it's it was most likely Patel and not Bruce Ivins. Uh, so we'll be digging into uh, uh, those things um, in in this particular broadcast. Uh, so in the interest of time, I'll let. Uh, uh, Robbie, uh, start off with uh, some of his new, very awesome stuff, and we will discuss and go from there. Throw well, it to you. you. 
thanks uh, Whitney for having me on I really appreciate it um and I just want to say to you uh you're one of the only people out there um right now who's you know seriously digging into this um so I really appreciate that um and uh yeah it's uh I mean some of your work has definitely inspired me to uh, look in certain directions and so forth um so I think uh I mean what I'm going to show your listeners today um, will hopefully be compelling. Um, but, uh, let me, uh, let me, let me hold on a second. Um, let me pull up my window here just to get, just to cut to the the chase, because, uh, I don't want to describe this any more than I have to. Um, oh, you already have it up. Awesome. You see it's on the screen before I can even see it. Okay. So, <laughs> so just, uh, to explain what Whitney was saying earlier, this is, this was something that I sort of randomly decided to start, um, I guess around the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, it was an idea that I had based on the research initially of Daniel Hopsicker, um, who spent a lot of time researching the hijackers' activities leading up to 9-11 in the state of Florida. Now, there's been a bunch of other stuff that's come out since he's done his research uh, in terms of tying things to... Florida geographically having to do with the 9-11 attacks, Huffman Aviation, flight schools, other additional 9-11 suspects besides the actual, you know, alleged hijackers who died. Uh, there's a there's actually a really good list out there. And I think it was done by a Finnish newspaper investigative team. And what they did was interesting. They actually combined together all of the known addresses available with all the 9-11 suspects in addition to the hijackers, the hijackers activities, everywhere they went in Florida, everywhere they lived, timelines of where they lived. And in addition to that, the mystery of the Israeli art students activity in Florida, which oddly lines up timeline wise and geographically with hijacker activity to some extent in Florida. Now, this fin list, which you can find online, it's a PDF. It's, it's great. It's actually, I mean, it's probably one of the best resources we have in a raw document form about 9-11 activities of potential suspects or related people. I mean, it's got hundreds of addresses in there. So my idea was, why don't I just plug all those addresses into an actual map as a starting point, since I have all these, and then sort of build from there with other addresses that I know have to do with 9-11, but haven't necessarily been like linked together. So for example, George W. Bush's activities on the evening before 9-11. He was in Sarasota, you know, Emmett T. Booker School. He stayed on Longboat Key the night before. He got that mysterious visit in the morning from that van full of Middle Eastern looking men that were never found. Um, you know, some of these things made me think, oh, you know, were those maybe art students? Were they, you know, were, were these related to some of the hijackers? But then I started finding stuff like a researcher, Gumby, uh, who's been coming on the podcast a lot lately, he reminded me that uh, Muhammad Atta, for example, was having drinks um, a couple days before Bush arrived on Longboat Key just down the street. So when I started thinking about things like that, I, I you know, I thought that's just such a weird coincidence that Muhammad Atta, you know, was was drinking at a bar on Longboat Key, you know, which is a pretty ritzy kind of, not, you know, it's it's a lot of the other places in Florida they were are nice, too. But like Longboat Key is like a particularly ritzy area. So it just seems odd that Muhammad Atta might have had some like, you know, impetus to go or George Bush was about to go. It is just strange. 
but these thoughts just, you know, started leading me in all different directions. And so what I did, Whitney, is I basically made the fin list, which is, you know, maybe like 150 addresses. I expanded it to be like five times larger with a pool of potential suspects and characters and locations, not just from 9-11, Israeli art students, uh, you know, Intel ops in Florida, because um, the history of Intel ops and black ops and mob and organized crime in Florida, I mean, it's like a, it's, that's like the next. Yeah. It's like doing a study of the organized crime in, in Las Vegas. Right. <laughs> yeah, but like on a state level scale. Yeah. yeah. It's insane. Florida is a crazy freaking place. It's where I'm from. Uh, yeah. Actually uh, what you were just talking about, Sarasota is where I uh, actually grew up. <laughs> You grew uh, up in the which, heart of 9-11 County. Yeah, well, I was in sixth grade when it happened. So, you know, I was oh. pretty oblivious to a lot of that stuff. I was like 11 well, <laughs> or so. I mean, it's it's so crazy, Whitney. I mean, I, I mean, even just the Huffman aviation stuff that, that Hopsicker, you know, wrote about almost 20 years ago is still absolutely confirmable. I mean, it's like this: there was a drug trafficker dude you know, several CIA potentially connected people running three different flight schools that these hijackers went to. I mean, and maybe you could say, well, there's just so much spook activity in Florida that like all these private flying schools and chartered airlines probably have, you know, worked with black ops or CIA or whatever before. But then when it gets that murky, you just have to start wondering, well, what was 9-11 actually? You know, what was all this Florida stuff? Why was Muhammad Atta making so much noise? I mean, there's so many different areas yeah apparently though he did make a lot of noise there's a, mm-hmm. a girl in my like sixth grade class named Susie. i'm not gonna say the rest of her name but anyway she uh said that like this was when this was like not long after the attacks when we were in school she uh lived in nokomis which was near my high school or my my middle school it's like middle and high school together it's in osprey uh florida mm-hmm. and she lived in nokomis and said that she lived just a couple doors down from one of the supposed uh hijackers or something and that they were like partiers the fundamentalists oh, well, so. <laughs> it's definitely there's definitely documentation that muhammad atta uh consumed cocaine uh there's documentation that they smoked weed i just found a funny a funny uh entry from some random eyewitness account where they were smoking they just would smoke weed outside so like imagine back in the early that's 2000s, not that uncommon in parts of florida it's, it's though, not, you know <laughs> but let's just say you know, if this was supposed to be a sophisticated sleeper cell operation, it doesn't line up at all with the facts. And let me just show you something interesting, Whitney, that that was really compelling to me. That's part of my impetus for doing this. Um, so I don't know if you can see it on your screen now, but I'm mm-hmm. zoomed into the Hollywood, Florida area, area right here. And you see all these green icons right here. You see these. These are all listed addresses, publicly available 9-11 suspects or known 9-11 hijackers, uh, activities and addresses. Now, what's very interesting is uh, after the DEA memo came out, giving out all the addresses for these supposed, you know, Israeli art student uh, spy, suspected spies, they thought. What happens is this is this is to me, this is one of the most compelling things to me that maybe keep going with this map. And someone already had discovered this before me. This is not my find. But watch what happens when you click on the tab on the map um, with Israeli art students activity in Florida around the same time period. Now, if you look carefully at Hollywood right there, watch what happens. So this, so this mark right here 
is a known location of one of the team leaders of a group of Israeli art students. Now, the DEA refers to these team these people as team leaders because they believe they were sort of the ringleaders of different cells of what they suspect right. spies. Now, I mean, look at look at where this is. So this is um, Mohan Al Shiri's address. Um, there, this is Ayajara listed address. Now, just look how close this is on the map. I actually can't pull up the measuring stick on this version of the map, but if you I mean, you can you can just see if I close up. It's just really only right. Uh, is it okay if I give some general there. background for people who may be watching and they may sure. not be familiar with the whole Israeli art student thing? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So this this is um, one of the scandals tied with the alleged Israeli intelligence foreknowledge of nine eleven, of which the nine eleven high five fivers or so called dancing Israelis are are you know sort of interconnected with but the israeli art students thing is is much more extensive uh, probably the best work on that has been done by uh chris ketchum uh and after that i would say definitely listen to robbie's episode on this uh, where he goes through the dea memos and stuff um about the israeli art students um hopefully uh uh we can get that link thrown in the in the chat for people watching cuz it's definitely um <laughs> An interesting introduction, but essentially, you know, very compelling evidence that it was a, a massive espionage information uh, 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 operation targeting uh, specifically um, DEA agents and and other as, uh, people and, and agencies uh, related to the U.S. federal government. And so these are espionage related uh, figures, and for them to be uh, so close to all of these uh, 9/11 hijackers in Florida is interesting. When you consider that, like in the cases of, of the New York Israeli espionage scandals um, around the time of 9-11, they claimed that they were spying on, on uh, Arab uh, activity of interest uh, in the area. And look how close they are in Florida. You know, if they were so doing supposedly what the 9-11 uh, high fibers dancing Israeli uh, urban moving systems people claimed they were doing, you know, if they had the same modus operandi, how would they not have known um, about all of these people there. Um, it's a pretty interesting overlap. But um, yeah, for more information, check out Robbie's Media Roots uh, episode on that and Chris Ketchum's work. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I guess just that the <clears throat> DEA, the DEA was the one who came out and talked about this. Now, we only know about it because the memo leaked. And there must have been someone in the DEA who was concerned enough, who was like trying to shake trees in the press and get somebody to talk about it. I mean, obviously, that's why Carl Cameron of Fox News talked about it, which is just crazy that that's like the only TV news report. That report, though, if people are familiar well, with Well, only that, TV news report. CNN yeah. and a lot of those other outlets had written reports written about, about it. it. True, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Carl Cameron report is much more expansive. It, and it, that His report actually goes way beyond the art students. It goes into Amdocs, which... Converse Emphasis, and yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It implies that they were, that somehow... This front company, Amdocs, which was, was like a real company. They did like real phone logs for all these real yeah. companies. We're blowing DEA sting operations on like E, like massive E trafficking, you know, criminal activity that involved Israeli nationals. So that also ties into some weird nexus where, yeah, there were all these Israeli art students basically with no cover story other than, hey, I'm from the university of so-and-so and I'm selling art. Beyond that cover story, it was almost like they didn't get any more information to uh, to explain who they were. It, it, so that to me is just odd in of itself to send people out into the field. Yeah, give them almost well, no also, cover story. 
and then just let him fly and then basically let him fly into this these spider webs of of feds who are like yeah who are these these people are sus let's interview these people and that happened multiple times uh to the art students and i go through one of the stories in my podcast about just how ludicrous it was a woman walks into a like a private dea building knocks on the door and says hey i'm selling art and then they're like they already got the memo by that time the the, the leaked memo warning about these students so the DA agents are like okay let's question this woman because we already know that she's She's exactly how they describe these spies in these memo, these memos. So they bring her back into the interrogation room. And then she's like, oh, yeah, actually, I can't answer these questions. She's kind of like, yeah, you caught me. Like, I don't like I give you a wrong name. Why don't you talk to my team leader? So they go outside and she brings them like to this part on the, the street and like a van pulls up with their team leader. And the team leader is like, hey. And they're like, hey, why don't you come into the office and we'll just question all of you because the team leader's van pulls up with like four other guys in it. So this is, it's almost like a Coen Brothers movie, like Burn After Reading level espionage. That is what's so strange about this. But then in addition to that, Winnie, the way the hijackers acted in Florida is like that also. Muhammad Atta threatening to murder Jolene Bryant, the USDA loan officer behind her desk because she won't hand him $650,000 in cash. That's just so crazy that, you know, that it just seems like so many things happen where this is not the behavior of a sophisticated operation or spy network, but yet it appears to be some, you know, it appears to be at the same time. So I, I yeah, I'm going off on a tangent on that, but if you want to, I mean, I could show you some more stuff on the map just so we can get going. Right. Well, keep in mind too, nine, the 9-11 hijackers are the people set up to take the fall. They don't need to be sophisticated. They're just really, you know, I would argue all they really need to be are patsies, right? And so they just need to be there and in the right place at the right time for the 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 official narrative to explain uh enough of what it needs to explain uh, for people to buy into it right sure but it but i think the behavior in there and the how public they were kind of flies in the face of how we're supposed to it does fly in the face of the official narrative but the official narrative doesn't go deep right it's like a superficial story and that's where you're supposed to stay um exactly yeah. And, uh, you know, it's amazing more people don't question it. Ah, what do you know? We talk, we've been talking about this <laughs> lately and I've done some podcasts on it. But anyway, so, um, yeah. So I, I guess I'll just move on to the, 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 so the most interesting thing, I think the first thing I wanted to do with the map was to, you know, like you said at the beginning of this, this stream, why not look at 9 11 and anthrax as possibly done by the same perps or as part of a larger, operation because if a lot of people are already looking at 9-11 from the from the point of view that it was some kind of intelligence operation which i lean towards it being something probably like military intelligence you know it had to involve some people who are like military skilled i think so I, I i guess my view on anthrax is it's a similar thing sophisticated most likely involved definitely more than one person um and has some relationship to 9-11 uh, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's inexplicably linked. So I guess what I did on the map, what was more important things was to try to link together anthrax related sites, crime scenes, players, suspects on the same map, you know, geographically, because the first anthrax crime scene was in Boca Raton, Florida at the AMI building. Robert Stevens photo editor dies on October 5th uh, from inhalation anthrax. And 
what Graham McQueen found, um, and this was already reported right after 9-11, but what Graham McQueen dredged up and re-examined as a, you know, we should look at this again, was this idea that the FBI was originally looking at an AMI employee potentially as a suspect, not just in the 9-11 attacks, but also in Robert Stevens' death. Now, you can find early reports about this, uh, this man named Mike Irish, who was Robert Stevens' boss, essentially. He was the lead editor at The Sun at the time. Uh, Mike Irish, his wife, Gloria Irish, is a real estate agent in Florida, and she procured two apartment uh, complexes or apartments for different hijackers at one time. So the FBI, actually, you can find early stories right after 9-11 where the FBI is like, yeah, we think this is linked. We think 9-11 and anthrax are linked because of this person. We're questioning her. They called her in the middle of the night. Um, they kind of put insinuations out, actually, about her. They tried. They didn't quite say she was a person of interest, but they borderline did, um, which I think is interesting. You know, the FBI, you know, uh, they have a political purpose for doing that. Usually they want it's like they're kind of trying to want to put pressure on people or to you know, create anxiety. So they're they're kind of throwing Gloria Irish under the bus at first. Now, Gloria Irish is this real estate agent wife of Robert Stevens' boss. So what I did on my map is I basically just, you know, went through every potential publicly listed address for Gloria Irish um, for, for her real estate stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, I thought Graham's theory was compelling that there was definitely a connection. But what I found is um, it, once you actually start inputting this stuff on the map, it gets... I mean, it gets really, uh, it really strengthens uh, Graham's theory to a point where I think it's just, it's undeniable uh, that there is a bizarre connection here. And it's not, you know, and if you match up these timelines, it's not just, oh, she was going around with them for months and months showing them apartments. So this makes sense why they're near her so often. Um, it doesn't actually. Uh, and I'll show you just one example. Um, this is a completely unrelated time period to when the hijackers were searching for apartment buildings, totally different hijackers than she interacted with. Uh, one of their addresses, as you can see here, 810 Bamboo Lane, um, is literally across the street from a payphone used to call a 9-11 hijacker at a Texaco payphone, 2921 South Federal Highway. Now, like literally right up the street was a hotel where a, a different hijackers were staying. So I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, an interesting proximity connection to Gloria Irish. You know, is there any more? And yeah, I kept, I just kept finding more and more and more. And I mean, I think at this point, you really have to ask yourself how much of this did the FBI look at? And at what point did they decide she wasn't suspicious anymore? Um, because they had to have seen this too. This is actually the only address I could find that's only listed under her husband. And I'm not sure about this. It looks like Mike Irish might have passed away uh, two years ago. I'm not sure if it's the same Mike Irish, but this is the same Mike Irish that's her husband. <laughs> this is a Kinko's uh, where a, uh, one of the 9-11 hijackers bought something literally across the street from Mike Irish's, looks like his apartment building. This is not Gloria Irish's real estate office. This is not a public storefront. This is literally across the street. So again, you do have to wonder, I'm not, you know, I don't have special access to this stuff. I'm looking at this stuff with a subscription account, you know, on one of these public database websites. And it's really easy to find all this stuff. So 
I, you have to wonder, did the FBI look at this and just write it off and be like, yeah, that's a really, that's a really suspicious coincidence, but we can't find anything more. Or was someone told to sort of back off of them? You know, it's, it's curious. Um, and I also have to wonder the same. This is actually one of the more surprising revelations. Um, well, actually, I'll just preview this for you right now since I'm already here. You can see this is the VP of Battelle, uh, Russell P. Austin, right here. And look how close he is to one of the Israeli art students, just, you know, kind of coincidentally. Uh, you know, this idea that the Israeli art students were were spying on DEA labs and DEA lab technicians is interesting because that's how the DEA saw it. But if these Israeli art students were there spying on chemical labs or lab technicians, there's actually a lot of Battelle labs, uh, people and labs in Florida. So again, that's, I'm just throwing that out there. I have no idea if that's connected, but I'm going to keep you know going in that direction. But here's, I think, one of the craziest things I found recently that I know for sure the NYPD and the FBI had to have seen this and decided not to talk about it because it's it's so shocking that they would have had to spin it in some way, I think, if it came out. And I'll show you what I mean right now. So I'm turning off the the tabs for the um, uh, everything else besides the hijackers right now. Um, but let's go back. To, so let's go to Giuliani. There's a lot of Giuliani stuff on here. But uh, so. Hey, sorry. Can you? Yeah. Okay. I, I uh, muted myself by accident oh, for a okay. second. We're trying um, to talk. Right. I, well, I just think maybe it might be helpful for people watching. Might want to look at this map alongside you while you're talking. Can you throw that in in the chat here where we are, and then uh, Star can put it in the in the Rockfin chat. Is that okay? Um, I. I'm a little hesitant too because I don't know if it could be uh, edited. I, I think someone <laughs> could modify it in the state it's in right now, so I have to back it up. Ah, uh, okay, will, never mind. I will provide a backup. I'll, I'll do it afterwards. How about that? Is that okay? Okay. Well, we'll okay. find a way to get it to people because it's definitely okay. you know I I saw this before we did the stream and it's definitely you know Robbie zooming in and, and looking at very specific details. I think one of the most compelling things about the map in its entirety is actually when you zoom out more and you see just like how all these different events and addresses for all of these supposedly separate events just like completely overlay uh, in, a, in a really uh, insane way for them not to have some sort of um, <clears throat> connection. And um, one thing I want to add to what you've already been uh, talking about this whole this whole thing about the interconnectedness, um, you know, you're looking at it from from, you know, a map level. Um, but but Graham McQueen, who we who we've referenced um, a couple times, that wrote uh, the the 2001 Anthrax Deception. Uh, he came on my podcast, and people that want to listen to that, it's public right now here on um, on on Rockfin. He said essentially, um, you know, if you look at the, just the narratives, right, of 9/11 and Anthrax, uh, or, that they tried to start with Anthrax first, not like the final Bruce Ivins official story. Uh, it was very clear they wanted to make it look connected. Um, with the anthrax official narrative they first tried to go with of uh, like the the hijackers got this from Saddam Hussein and blah 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 the dark winter narrative that they had pre-gamed essentially um, and so what they wanted is that once it, if they had managed to cement that as the official anthrax attack narrative wanted people to go back on this breadcrumb trail and see that they were connected to 9-11. But because the source of the anthrax used in the attacks was so quickly traced back to the U.S. military that that 
uh, planned official narrative was no longer viable. They had to go back and try and cover up this uh, pre-planned breadcrumb trail that was going to show people that they were connected so they could finally connect Saddam Hussein to events of terror and get their Iraq war justification, essentially. 100%, Whitney. And that's another thing that I did on my map was, if you can see here, there's an icon designating crossover between anthrax 9-11 narratives um and these are sort of the early narratives you're talking about so the crop duster rental location where the hijackers were supposedly trying to rent a crop duster to do an anthrax attack is on here and all that stuff is also on here so if, if you're specifically interested in what you just said and and i'm going to give people access to this map you can actually see yeah you can find them on the map with these with these icons that those that narrative that early seeded narrative uh you're talking about um and I think that's really important because, yeah, that's that's seemingly the direction where they wanted people to go um, originally with this. And that got dropped really quickly, actually. I mean, as, as early as I would say November 2001, the FBI actually released a profile insinuating it was an inside job. Um, and that kind of got lost in the shuffle, too, because we still they still used uh, anthrax to get us into Iraq, you know, almost two years later. So. There's a lot of things that, that happen after that, too, in terms of propagandistically. But, yeah, it's weird that the FBI, I mean, even Mueller came out on November 3rd and said, here are the letters. We need help identifying the handwriting of the letters. Like, like, and that's just sort of a weird, I didn't, totally forgot that that happened. There did seem to be a moment where the FBI was, like, genuinely or acting like they were genuinely trying to investigate this. Um, you know, and that could have just been posturing or PR, but. Well, I think there were some people there and the fact that people like Richard Lambert, uh, who was leading that case for a period of time, eventually left and turned whistleblower and were denouncing it as a fraud. You know, there were obviously people within the structure of the FBI involved in investigating anthrax that were actually trying to do something. Um, and I think, uh, that's why they ended up extending the amount of time the investigation officially took for so long uh, mm -hmm. to try and, and wrestle control of the narrative within the FBI away from those people and towards something that was safe and, and kept uh, the focus off of the heat, really, um, off of people they wanted to, uh, you know, uh, avoid talking about. Some of whom we can we can talk about later. <laughs> oh yeah, we're gonna definitely. I mean, and that's another really fascinating Florida connection that that's gonna. I think that really reveals a lot about this. But I think the last thing I just want to show people on the map, just so they can understand how big of a deal this is. And this is something I've reconfirmed multiple times. I, I, you know, when I first found this, I was like, this is this can't be real because it's just so ridiculous. You know, I I found this. Um, what you know, I looked up Rudy Giuliani and in uh, Florida, found several listed properties for him. And um, his wife, around the time of 9-11, goes by the name of Dan Donna Hanover now. She used to go by uh, Donna Giuliani. Um, she lives in this really nice looking uh, Miami condo. Now, I don't know if this is still where she lives or not. Um, but this, so this condo complex in Miami, as you can see, it looks rather nice. It's got multiple swimming pools four tennis courts looks rather ritzy right um but what i found just totally randomly i wasn't looking for this at all um when you turn on the 9-11 known listed addresses hijackers tab on the map this is what you find you find that a 9-11 hijacker in fact one of the main hamburg cell people 
was staying in this beautiful condo or listed their addresses in one of these beautiful condos, literally in the next building next to Rudy Giuliani's wife's condo. So I guess my point, Whitney, is the NYPD anti-terrorism task force, the FBI, are not idiots. They have access to all these public records. Someone there must have seen this and scratched their head and been like, what the fuck is going on? You know, I could see them maybe spinning this as the terrorists were trying to get Rudy or something. But no, I mean, it's just, it's freaking weird. Um, And I don't know what it means, but there it is. I mean, it's undeniable. So, um, you know, the map, I think, is going to continue to help, uh, I guess, what's the way to say it? Like, to know which leads to follow and which ones maybe not to follow as much. It's helping me do that. Um, but it's also right. creating a lot of curveballs at the same time where it's like, wait a second, like Jeb Bush lives next door to a 9-11 suspect, like stuff like that. I'm just like, that's so weird. And that's on the map, too. Um, but yeah, in general, uh, the map, you know, we we could get more into it if you want when we want to get into Battelle. I can show you some weird connections with Robert Cadlick. But for now, um, yeah, I think that's that's where a good jumping off point to just get into the new the new anthrax finds. If you're okay with that. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, uh, I guess there's a couple uh, different places we could uh, go now. So um, one thing I did want to talk about, though, is, you know, the American media, uh, the AMI building, um, and, you know, that being the home of the National Enquirer. Um, this sort of came out a little bit with the Epstein scandal and then came out uh, around maybe like I, I forget how many months um, difference it was between that and the the Jeff Bezos National Enquirer um, events where they claimed that they were extorting, that they were involved in extortion and blackmail. There is a significant amount of evidence that the National Enquirer's photo basement, which would have been in the AMI building, you know, at the time this uh, the anthrax attacks happened, uh, because this isn't something that they were just doing around the time of the Epstein scandal and the whole Jeff Bezos thing, right? This is something they've been accused of doing uh, for pretty much most of their uh, history. Um, So what's interesting is that Robert Stevens was photo editor for The Sun, another outlet in there. He's handling photos, uh, right? And so a lot of these, uh, you know, alleged, uh, I guess, blackmail treasures, (laughs) for lack of a better word, um, of the National Enquirer, um, you know, I, I don't know if they shared the same uh, photo space, but I think that is kind of interesting. And as far as, um, let me get a link ready uh, to share, because I think it's pretty telling. So I'm going to have more information in this about my, uh, it's going to be in my um, upcoming book on uh, the Epstein scandal. Um, But if you're familiar with my work on Epstein, I talk a lot about Roy Cohn. And so essentially that created uh, the National Enquirer was uh, Hinoroso, Dean uh, Pope Jr., whose father was, you know, Gene Pope the first. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah, with ties to Mussolini, very involved with the New York mob. His son, who ran and made the National Enquirer what it is today, um, was best Roy Cohn's best friend growing up, um, very involved in this uh, from a, a very young age, just like Roy Cohn. Um, this sort of uh, intersection that existed in New York between organized crime and the Democratic Party 
um, and and the media um, and, and all of this stuff. Um, and Gene uh, Pope Jr. Uh, was also very involved with the CIA for a time and started the National Enquirer with a loan from Frank Costello, the famous um, mobster. <laughs> so, you know, th- th- this is definitely um, a media enterprise with ties that go back way back, uh, you know, to the same network that I talk about in the Epstein series being involved with blackmail. Uh, Roy Cohn was blackmailing people and he used it to run what he called his favor bank. And he, he basically the way he developed his whole blackmail favor bank system, Roy Cohn, was inspired by Gene Pope Jr.'s father, Gene Pope I. And then his son goes on to make the National Enquirer and allegedly is involved in this blackmail stuff. So, you know, it's interesting that the first anthrax death ends up there because you have to remember, too, that anthrax isn't like what they had um, <clears throat> gamed out in Dark Winter with like smallpox, which is super contagious anthrax. Um, like if you're infected with anthrax, you're not passing that to everyone around you after you're initially infected with it. So it's much, it's much more targeted. And I, I think, as you've pointed out, Robbie, you know, it, it, a lot of people have commented uh, that they're amazed there weren't more deaths. Uh, from the anthrax attacks, considering the amount and volume um, of anthrax that was going in the mail and how many uh, hands it was being passed through. Very specific people died in specific areas. And some of the anthrax deaths, it's like, what, like the the elderly lady, I think, in Connecticut and her like maid and stuff. Uh, people, it, That's always been like a, a wild card for a lot of people uh, to explain. Uh, sorry, my signal's a little bad, I guess. Uh the cell tower by my house is getting shit on. Uh, maybe by birds. <laughs> um, oh, well. Hopefully it comes back. Usually it's better. Um, hopefully people could hear me. All right. <laughs> I, can, I can hear you fine. Yeah, just uh, saying, uh, commenting on something you said about the mystery of how some of these people got anthrax. I was just going back into uh, the death of Kathy Nagoyan, the fourth anthrax victim. Um, hospital worker in uh, Manhattan. And what's interesting is you go back to the very original stories about her and the FBI is very openly saying that there's no traces of spores anywhere in her apartment, anywhere on her clothes, anywhere on any of her personal belongings, anywhere at her workplace, anywhere near her at all. Yet they know clinically speaking, based on autopsy results that she died from a massive dose of inhalation anthrax. How do you explain that? How does that make any sense? Well, the way they try to make sense out of it is they're like, well, maybe she had a genetic anomaly, which makes her particularly susceptible to anthrax spores. That's how, also what they say about Audley Lundgren, the, uh, the 94-year-old woman who died in Connecticut. Now with her, it's, I guess it's easier to believe because a 94-year-old woman dying from anything is not that shocking. It you know, could have been old age. Her immune system could have been weak. That theory might work with that, even though there were no spores found in her place either. Um, the Kathy Nagoyan one is actually much b- more bizarre because she was young, young-ish. She was healthy, non-smoker. Um, and basically what's fascinating, Whitney, is if you go back to the original reports about her, because she lived alone, because she wasn't white, I think, the FBI is actually planting a lot of insinuations out there, almost implying that she could be a terrorist. Uh, believe it or not. And in fact, in one article I found, I, I thought I was going crazy. Well, when all else fails to explain yeah. <laughs> the thing, but they I were a terrorist. Crazy. 
no, I thought I was like, you know, I'm looking at this too. I'm reading into this too much. I'm reading into these insinuations. I'm reading between the lines until I finally came across a Washington Post quote from an anonymous FBI official who said she could have been making anthrax herself. The FBI went out there and said this about one of the anthrax murder victims. So, I mean, the case, oh, just when you really go back, I think it's really important. You know, early reporting can always be, um, you know, not accurate. That's true. But in terms of when the FBI starts to tunnel an investigation and wants you to look in a specific direction at something, yeah. you got to go back to the beginning, pull out the threads from the beginning and see what they decided to ignore and what they decided to just sort of, you know, push to the side and, and pretend didn't exist. And in her, de- her the case of her death, that's definitely one thing that they ignored. And you can even see it in the executive uh, Justice Department summary of the end of their investigation. They mention her name like twice in the report. They don't say how she was murdered, but yet they're accusing Bruce Ivins of her murder. I mean, it's, they, they don't link it. They don't even yeah. bother to link it, which is, I, I think, kind of fascinating. So, um. Yeah, but, there should be a lot out there, by the way, for people not familiar um, about how Bruce, there's there's no way Bruce Ivins uh, did this and definitely not as a lone wolf. Um, and like and he, just like, uh, I don't even know where, where to even begin to tell people to start. Uh, Meryl like Nass has done a lot of really good work on that, uh, but a lot of other people have as well. Uh, Graham McQueen, I mentioned it some in my series. Um I mean, it, there were there were a lot of people at the time that were like, there's no way it was Bruce Ivins, including some of the top anthrax experts like in the country, like the most respected scientist in that in that, yeah. I guess, field study knowledge about anthrax um, uh, as like a bioweapon or really as anything. They were like, there's no way Bruce Ivins could have done this by himself the way FBI said. And of course, Bruce Ivins conveniently died before the FBI ever had to prove their case against him. Uh, in court, he was under 24 um, seven FBI surveillance supposedly died from a Tylenol overdose, which takes a very long time and is very painful. And the FBI was watching his every move and, you know, apparently didn't notice. Um, and then can, he's conveniently gone and they don't have to take anything to court because people said at the time too, that their case would just have fallen apart in court. A hundred percent. And I guess it's easy. I think it's rather easy to say just from, cause we're, we're cynical about this type of stuff naturally. So when we see, you know, a summary by the FBI, we're like, yeah, of course that's BS. They have a really weak case. But I think what's been important for me with this approaching it from the 20th anniversary was yes, I, I can assume that and I can be confident of that just my, my own knowledge and life experience. But when you actually get into the granularity of what they presented and all the specifics, you really, it, it, it's really clear that they even know they have a weak case yeah. because yeah. it's not just, I think the important thing here is it's not just the weakness against Bruce Ivins. That's definitely a huge part of it. That falls apart. It's hard to believe that, but you also have to look at it from the perspective of what did they omit? What did they ignore? What did they choose not to talk about in the report? And that stuff is almost more interesting because that, when you include that stuff, it makes the case against Bruce Ivins completely impossible. So that, yeah. and, and that's sort of what I'd like to show today. Just, a very clear and, and I think a photographic, uh, you know, picture and one picture that really uh, throws the whole Bruce Ivins case out the window completely. Um, and I don't know if you want to go into the the hoax versus the real letters, but I think that this find pretty much clinches that and makes it so that the FBI 
essentially wanted you wanted the public to ignore four other letters that were clearly linked uh, to the real attacks. Um, so I don't know. Do you want to go into that now, and I could? Sort of break yeah, it sure. Okay, that's uh, that's that's fine with me. Uh, though you know, the thing I uh, one thing I will add about Bruce Ivins is they totally destroyed that guy's life, um, and there's a lot of evidence. Um, just on, on the alleged smoking gun link that like it was anthrax in his flask that was used doesn't hold up, uh, at all. I mean, it, and it actually, if you actually look at the evidence there about his flask, it actually points you to Battelle or, uh, Dugway, <laughs> uh, which are the other places that most people who research this suspect of having been the source of the anthrax and the attacks. Um, but the way they destroyed this guy's life was uh, really criminal. And th what you had said about uh, them knowing their story is so full of holes and sucks. That's why they're going back to essentially Hollywood to strengthen the case for them. And there aren't they releasing this like dumb series or like TV movie or something about how Bruce Ivins is so bad on the, the 20th anniversary that's, you know, everyone that watches it is going to be like, oh, Bruce Ivins was a horrible man. Um, you know, and not actually know or care probably after watching it, what the truth is. Um, it, they're know, relying on that to sell it to the public, not on actual uh, evidence. That tells well, you a is, lot. Yeah. It's unclear. I mean, obviously it seems like they're going to, they're going to say Bruce Ivins is the guy in it. He's being played by like a classic movie villain, like actor. He's <laughs> actually, I don't know if anyone's seen ghost out there, with Patrick Swayze, the yeah. guy who plays the guy who hires the hitman to kill Patrick Swayze. In that movie. Oh, <laughs> is the guy playing Bruce. I Holy yeah, yeah. shit. Yeah. They so like they're not even like coy no. about it. These assholes. No. Well, but, but what's weird is there's like a, there's like <laughs> oh a sort God. of a composite, like Asian main character, that's like the lead character of the show that I don't know who it's based on. I don't, I'm not it's probably someone is. made up. That's what I'm saying. I think they made up like a, they did like a sort of like woke it. They like made like a, like a non-white character, like the lead of the investigation. He doesn't really exist. He's like a composite. And because the lead of the investigation resigned and became a whistleblower and denounced it as a fraud. Yeah. So they need yeah. someone who's well, made up that believes the story the whole time. Well, that's another interesting part of this is there's so many twists and turns of went what different people who are trying to push the FBI investigation in different direction. But yeah, the miniseries right. looks ridiculous. It's it's only three parts. But what's weird, Whitney, um, is I looked up the cast list on IMDb and half of the cast list are Florida characters from the anthrax attacks. Gloria Irish is actually in the miniseries. So I'm kind of like, oh, that's weird. Are they are they trying to create some kind of mystery and intrigue but then eventually just be like yeah it's bruce no. ivins i mean so <laughs> I, I doubt that <laughs> i mean it's the hot zone show and that's pretty you know it's pretty establishment so um yeah i mean anyways that's going to come out in like late november i'll definitely like give a review of that um but i think you know florida is one of the most crucial aspects of the anthrax attacks uh because it was the first crime scene and because there was no letter found at the first crime scene. So according to the FBI's case, there were right. five letters sent that had real anthrax in them. And one of them was not found. They retrieved the other four. Uh, one of, the one of them that was not found was sent to the AMI building that killed Stephen, uh, sorry, Robert Stevens, they say. Uh, the other four were sent to the New York Post, to Tom Brokaw, NBC News, to... Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy. Now, the letters 
according to the FBI, and this is probably, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is probably something they didn't make up, uh, is that the letters were sent in two batches. So the real anthrax letters, according to all the anthrax timelines you can find, the ones that try to debunk things, the ones that try to bolster the official story, they all agree that two batches of letters were sent out. The first batch was postmarked September 18th. Those letters, the real anthrax letters, were sent from New Jersey on September 18th. They were sent to Tom Brokaw and the New York Post. Now, here's the fascinating thing, Whitney. And this is something that I, had, for some reason, didn't stumble across until years after looking at this investigation. One of the only anthrax timelines I can find uh, that includes more letters than this is by someone named Barbara Hatch Rosenberg. Now, what's interesting about Barbara Hatch Rosenberg is she got absolutely savaged and smeared by neocons, by all types of people, uh, and mostly by Stephen Hatfield's PR team, because she was gun- she was really generating a lot of heat against Stephen Hatfield. And basically, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, what's weird is you search for her name now on Twitter, and you see all these like weird parroted smears about her. I don't know very much about her, but I know that this timeline that she's developed here is one of the most important timelines ever laid out in the anthrax case that I've ever seen in all my time looking at this. And here's why, because the real letters were sent out on September 18th, the first two, two days after that, before any of them arrived, two hoax letters were sent out from St. Petersburg, Florida, one of them to Tom Brokaw and another to the New York post. So here's what we have happening here. We have a killer who sends out two real anthrax letters to two specific media outlets in New York on September 18th. Then we have somebody in St. Petersburg, Florida, two days later, sending two hoax anthrax letters to the exact same outlets before those letters arrive, before there's anything in the news. And here's what else is weird about this. The two, letter, the two hoax letters that were sent from St. Petersburg, Florida, two days after the New Jersey ones, have very similar handwriting. And this has actually been mm-hmm. bolstered by an FBI agent named Agent Marwin. And Rudy Giuliani himself says in a press conference, he says the handwriting looks similar to the real Trenton, New Jersey letters. So already we have a very bizarre coincidence here happening where over 700 miles away, and two days later in Florida, there are hoax letters being sent with similar handwriting to the same outlets. Now, what's different about these letters, and none of these letters have been shown or photographed, uh, put out there. But what's interesting about th- one of these letters is apparently the one to Tom Brokaw actually had like Russian Cyrillic characters in it to make it appear like it was written by a Russian person, reversed R's. And this letter to Tom Brokaw uh, says, See, or it says, see what ha- the unthinkable, see what happens next. And again, you have to remember this hoax letter was sent and arrived in Tom Brokaw's office before any news at all was in the news about anthrax. So this hoaxer supposedly knew what was going to happen next, which was NBC News would be like, oh my God, we have an anthrax infection here. Now, this is a little convoluted, but if you look at this timeline, it it makes sense. But basically what happened, Whitney, and this is really odd, the hoax letter to Tom Brokaw is actually what kick-started the FBI's investigation into the anthrax attacks. The hoax letter was called in 
uh, I believe on the 25th of September, you can see it right here. It says NBC received an open hoax letter postmarked 20th of September, notified FBI, but incident not reported by media. Pretty much from September 25th to the beginning of October, this person who opened this hoax letter and NBC started to come down with anthrax symptoms. Now the FBI finally intervenes and they come two days after they didn't seem like it was very urgent to come to this. You know, they didn't know it was a hoax letter or not when she opened it. She thought it, you know, it looked real to her. She even assumed that whatever sickness she was suffering from came from whatever toxin was in this letter. Now what's weird is the FBI came and tested this letter and said, it doesn't have anything in it, but then they're, they're talking to her over a course of the next few days. And they say, do you remember any other letters? Do you remember anything else? And she's like, you know what? There was another letter that just didn't seem as important that came around the exact same time that I remember like some, something that looked like sand spilled out of it. So the FBI goes and looks through NBC's records and they find what they believe to be the real letter, which they identify as the Trenton, New Jersey letter that was postmarked September 18th. Now it's strange, Whitney, is this letter they claim is the one that got her infected, the real letter that she doesn't remember getting. She thought the hoax letter is what got her infected. She re- that's what she remembers. And so this is, I think, a really interesting part of the story where you have that hoax letters actually, in, because- you have hoax mm-hmm. letter initiating what she believes is her medical condition and the FBI believes it as well until they test it negative. But then they randomly find another letter that has what appears to be sand in it you know, the, le- the hoax letter, when she opened it, it was more like a talcum powder cloud. It was more like that, you know, that weaponized sort of style. Anthrax, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and, and, but the, the, the anthrax one is supposed to be the sandy one. That's interesting because um, we'll get to my stuff on, on Bill Patrick, William C. Patrick III. He's a big part of um, part three in my engineering contagion series. Um, really important guy. But basically, he has this habit um, of tossing around at NATSEC meetings and stuff on bioterrorism in the 90s, like vials of brown sandy stuff that he says is anthrax stimulant. And it's made to simulate anthrax um, for studies and things like that. This is the guy that developed all the weaponization uh, anthrax patents that are all secret for Fort Detrick um, before the weapons program official uh, bioweapon program was shut down by Nixon. Um, and he would just like toss this stuff at people and be like, ha and like freak them out. And they'd be like, oh, and he'd be like, oh, you guys don't know anything about anthrax. Uh, and it would be, and then he, you know, it was anthrax stimulant. And it looks just like that. And it was used for simulations. He's the guy that also did the study for Stephen Hatfield. We can get to this later um, oh. about exactly how much powder w- was needed to put in business envelopes to conduct an anthrax bioterror attack in the mail. Um, for the the intelligence contractor SAIC, where Hatfield, Jerome Hauer, a bunch of fun guys uh, <laughs> were were working at the time. Uh, of course, uh, you know, like a year or two before the anthrax attacks itself. So brown granular sandy. Let's focus on that one, but not the one that actually looks like what weaponized anthrax looks like. That's uh, interesting because um, I will say this is also interesting because by this time, Bill Patrick. And Robert Cadlick were involved in uh, basically, I would argue, fucking up the FBI um, investigation into anthrax. So they would have consulted someone like Bill Patrick about this. And he would have been like, oh, no, you know, he could have said whatever. He was initially suspected of doing 
the anthrax attacks. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we'll believe what you say. Even though Stephen Hatfield, who's our top suspect, is your uh, protege and uh, father's son. Um, (laughs) It's normal. No, it gets. It, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about about Bill Patrick because there's a key element of the Judith. There's a Judith Miller element of these hoax letters that I, is actually why I started looking at this in the first place. Um, that gets really strange too. So, so just looking at this timeline here, um, what I've already told you is that hoax letters actually initiated the FBI coming out to NBC News before the real letters were even known about. Apparently. And there was already a cutaneous anthrax infection at NBC News that they believe came from this hoax letter that was sent from St. Petersburg, Florida, two days after the real letters that that looks like the same handwriting. Although we, as the public, cannot see that letter that was sent to Tom Brokaw. We haven't been able to see it. Now, other journalists actually have seen this. Don Foster for Vanity Fair talks about it. Barbara Hatch Rosenberg in this uh, website I have up here talks about seeing it. People have seen these, and here's the crazy part, Whitney. When they saw them, that's when they believed that Stephen Hatfield apparently was the suspect, because apparently when you combine the hoax letters with the real letters, the handwriting seems to match up, they say, and I and I don't I haven't I have no idea if this is true, to Hatfield. Um, this is what they implied. So that's a strange thing. But that aside, I don't want to go to the Hatfield rabbit hole yet. The, the point here is that the handwriting seems similar. Now, how do I, and, and how do I, why am I trusting Giuliani, who's a potential suspect in this? Why am I trusting an FBI agent who says the handwriting is similar? Um, well, it's because I've seen one of the letters myself and I, had, I hadn't seen this until like three or four weeks ago. Um, and the handwriting on one of the hoax letters from St. Petersburg is clearly similar to the real letters. It just, I'm not a handwriting expert. I'm sure you're not either. Most people in your audience are. But I think when you see this photograph, you'd be like, huh. So let me just show what I'm talking about here. So right here is a is the second batch of hoax versus real letters. Mm-hmm. So right here you have a letter sent from St. Petersburg, Florida, from the same place by the same people uh, to a journalist in St. Petersburg, Florida, Howard Troxler. And this letter sent to Howard Troxler, was shipped out, believe it or not, on October 5th. Uh, It seemed as if the person who was sending out these hoax letters was doing it, like, inspired by every time the real letters would land or someone would die. So it was like, as soon as Robert Stevens dies, someone sends hoax letter out. And this new batch of hoax letters, one to Howard Troxler and one to Judith Miller of the New York Times. Right. and only a couple few days after that is when the letters went out to Dashiell and Leahy. Um, but just looking at this screenshot, I mean, I just think it's, you know, the similarities can't be denied. I'm not saying they're using the same pen or ink color, as right, that right. but I mean, someone, even if it's not the same person who wrote this, it's someone trying to disguise their handwriting in the exact same style. I mean, what are the chances of that? What are the chances of someone not having the prescience to send a hoax letter out two days after the real killer does without knowing anything about the murder. Right. Let me, um, um... what are the chance? And then just additionally, Whitney, this is what really throws a wrench, I think in the Bruce Ivins case, because 
they're can saying you go back to that picture though so i can comment oh. on it when you're done yeah sorry what did I no it's it? fine uh this is what really throws a wrench in the bruce ivan's case completely the fbi can barely account for bruce ivan's making two round trips to new jersey which would have taken him seven and a half hours from where he lived in in maryland so they're claiming that he went you know snuck down to this mailbox two separate times about a week apart sent these real anthrax letters to the mail in trenton new jersey right they can barely account for that missing time they believe they can in their report they're like yeah he left in the middle of the night you know he took like a nighttime drive down there and came back but here's the crazy thing when you factor in saint petersburg being the origin point for four of these letters at two different time periods a week apart that's like a 29 hour round trip from his house so there's absolutely no way that the FBI can account for Bruce Ivins being responsible for both sets of letters. So how does this make sense? Because clearly these both these sets of letters were sent in coordination. This timeline makes yeah. that undeniable. Um, and also, I mean, I think we, we just should just quickly talk about Judith Miller. She received a hoax letter um, and actually her story about receiving the hoax letter, like got more attention and sort of publicity and hysteria out there than almost any of the other stories. And her story about it is sort of the quintessential visual story about opening an envelope and a cloud flying into the room. That's where that yeah. story comes from is her experience opening the hoax letter. But what's interesting you said earlier, Whitney is she's saying things in her own account that completely contradict her own knowledge that Bill Patrick has, you know, taught her this whole time about bioweapons She's like, oh, yeah, when I opened it, I saw it was white. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is a hoax. It's like, wait a second. No. It was white. <laughs> yeah. That, like what Bill Patrick has taught you is that, no, that's actually like, you're going to fucking die, dude. Like, but, that's the worst shit. But <laughs> what does Judith Miller do after she sees the cloud and is still worried despite what you just said? She calls Bill Patrick. And, and based on what she says, he doesn't see the thing. He's like, yours is fake. And she's like, oh, okay, everything's fine. Thanks, that Bill. Makes okay. absolutely no sense. I mean, by the way, for people that don't know, Judith Miller was part of Dark Winter also. So she was part of Dark Winter. And if, and I bit the bullet and actually bought a New York Times subscription just so I can look back through her stuff. Articles. Yeah, they're fun. She's, she's the <laughs> leading bioweapons reporter in the United States and fear monger. 20 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no one on that beat harder than she was. And she was uh, clearly chosen by people in the national security state yeah. to leak things or to run. You know, Very cozy with uh, Scooter Libby, Dick Cheney's yeah. chief of staff, germ boy of the White House, as he was apparently called. Uh, she, she had a personal relationship with David Kelly, apparently. Um, she used to, she was talking to him up until the point that he died. Another mysterious bio science, you know, weapon scientist that's suicide. fascinating i didn't know that another yeah. point in the Judas miller is sus yeah. uh box <laughs> so, and yeah. unfortunately someone who's actually done a lot of really good work on this particular part of the story back in the day is marcy wheeler who's kind of gone full Russiagate. oh yeah well she and, she got trump derangement syndrome yeah but, mm -hmm. but but i mean if you go back to her earlier stuff I mean, she's going really hardcore against me. On anthrax, it was good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. she's, she's basically implying that Miller was a staged, managed sort of hoaxed event. She knew it was going to be a hoax. This is yeah. Marcy Wheeler saying all this stuff. And I completely agree with her. I think that 
obviously Judith Miller getting a letter at all is suspicious. So well, this, she was she was the at Dark Winter. She yeah. represented a media figure in the simulation, and Dark Winter simulates the media getting anthrax letters at the end. And that was just like what, like uh, I guess four months roughly before she actually gets one in real life, and it's like, I'll sure. call Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Whatever. Uh, anyway, can I make a comment on uh, on these letters? Because uh, it's pretty interesting. So um, the fake one. So if, if what you say is true, that people that had saw the St. Petersburg letters tied that to Stephen Hatfill. Um, and that's why they've been kept out of the press since Hatfill was given this huge settlement. And Well, that's my theory. You know, that's my theory. Yeah. Well, if that theory is true, I do want to comment about this real anthrax letter on the bottom. Um, sure. When Hatfield was under suspicion before the settlement and all of those things, a lot of uh, there were several articles that mentioned the Greendale School being the address it was sent from. Uh, because if you look back into Stephen Hatfield's background, he has a background with um anthrax events happening in Rhodesia, which I guess is uh, Zimbabwe, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, when he lived in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, uh, he, I I can't remember if he was lived across the street or worked across the street, but he, right next to Greendale School, he he, like was right around there. And there's no Greendale School in Franklin Park, New Jersey or around this area, but there is one where Stephen Hatfield used to, um, live and work uh, when he was cutting his teeth on anthrax type stuff um, back in back in the day. Um, and, and by the way, that's supposed to be the site of the first use of uh, anthrax as a bioterror agent, like actually in warfare. I believe that's where mm-hmm. Meryl Nass got her. Um, uh, I don't know if it's her doctoral thesis or something like that, but one of the wow. first people to really study that event. Uh huh. That is something I didn't know. Well, it's fascinating you say that because right above it, um, there's another potentially symbolic clue uh, as to who sent this or what they're who they're trying to frame. Let's say because what you're saying right. is that there's a clue there that it could be Hatfield or I someone that, that as, knew Hatfield. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, or in Hatfield's circle that he talked about this type exactly. of stuff. You have to keep in mind too that like this is um and what when I get to my part of this right. What we're talking about is really a network of these bioterror consultants and researchers that were working for groups like Battelle or SAIC, these really shady contractors that were doing stuff for both the military and the intelligence community, very spooked up individuals. And I'll also be showing you that these people are totally, for lack of a better word, sorry, I'm going to swear, they're fucked in the head. They're totally crazy and they love to fantasize all day about how to murder people in gruesome ways. And they say that they're like, we love to think about crazy ways for people to die. It's our favorite activity. Um, Stephen Hatfield is uh, one of those, but there's like several of those. Right. So these the, these particular individuals in, in, in which Hatfield is enmeshed uh, got together and talked about this stuff. And this is the kind of stuff they you know, when they shoot the shit, they talk about like mixing uh, smallpox with anthrax <laughs> and like cooking up germs in the kitchen and we're going to murder people down in the town that I can see from the hill of my house because um, that's fun uh, type stuff. And so, you know, they they knew each other, right? So if any of these guys are involved, which it, it seems much more likely than Bruce Ivins, you know, it didn't necessarily have to be Hatfield being like, writing doing the handwriting of the letters or whatever but someone may have known him and bill patrick like i said earlier was stephen hatfield's mentor 
And I think, honestly, out of the whole bunch, uh, he's the most suspect for sure, as we'll get to later. I mean, yeah, there's definitely it definitely seems like I mean, we already know that there's people in the government trying to throw Stephen Hatfield under the bus, whether he was somehow involved or not. There was a campaign to do that. Well, he's the weakest one in this group. Like he he's the protege of one of the main guys, but he's not. Yeah, he's still kind of he's the lowest ranking of this group in terms of his position and clout uh, at the time the attacks happen. So I think that may have been why he was chosen to be potentially thrown under the bus. But I think Bill Patrick was added to the investigation so quickly to sort of keep keep it from unraveling too much, you know. Sure. I mean, he definitely, I'm sure he, he had something to do with the way the narrative flowed. And one of the interesting things that came out of Don Foster's article in Vanity Fair and Don Foster's article in Vanity Fair, by the way, has been removed because Stephen Hatfield's lawsuits caused a lot of retractions, a lot of removals. Um, But in that article written by Don Foster, what he says is that it's not just the reverse, you know, R's in some of these letters, like apparently inside the Howard Troxler letter, the actual letter inside this envelope. Um, and I, I don't have the text in front of me right now, but it had, a, it had a threatening message inside. It said, see how this powder flies. It actually mentions the Oklahoma City bombing in the letter. It says, OKC rider truck, 18 wheels, uh, Tampa Bay Bridge. It's an, and it's, it's, it's mentioning a bridge collapse that happened in Tampa in the 70s. So it's almost, it's almost playing around with a lot of different tropes. It's, it's mentioning Oklahoma City bombing, you know, sort of connecting it yeah. maybe to 9-11. Then it's also kind of getting Mothman-ish. It's mentioning a mysterious bridge collapse that like a, a ship just like crashed near a bridge and killed like, you know, a bunch of people. Totally random. And then nothing to do with terrorism. And then it also seems Zodiac-ish. I mean, the letters themselves yeah. have a Zodiac flavor. When is the last time a letter was this notable well, in a murder besides the Zodiac case? Well, I mean, so it might be something else, but. I want to comment on this, like, uh, to make it look like there was some Russian uh, influence Wait, let me here. Let point on that really yeah. quick. Yeah, Saint sure. Peter, Saint Petersburg, Florida. The the choosing that the location. There, there. I think even maybe Bill Patrick, and I may be mistaken, but other people pointed out, besides Don Foster, that that's one of the main places in Russia where they have their bioweapons program. So the the using the Russian characters plus that as the location. I think it's hard. To, it, you kind of have to look at that and say, were they also trying to imply was the killer wanting to think that it was a Russian who was behind this? But anyway, sorry, yeah. Go. So Bill Patrick in the early '90s was the guy on behalf of the CIA who vetted and debriefed the guy who is now known as Ken Alabek. Previously, um, I can't pronounce his first name, but Alabekov, uh, number two uh, in uh, Bio Prepara, the Soviet Union. Uh, bioweapons program and um, who invented Alabekov anthrax as it's called, which was the anthrax allegedly in the Soviet Union strategic arsenal. Um, Another anthrax expert, like all of there's a lot of these guys are all just obsessed with anthrax and have been for a really long time. But the narrative that came out between uh, Alabek and Patrick who became best friends pretty much. I mean, basically Bill Patrick's like, I basically fell in love with him uh, after we met because they're both like totally deranged. Um, But, um, oh, I forgot where I was going. Oh yeah. So the narrative that comes out, so we know the dark winter narrative more or less was, okay, um, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction and those are passed to Al Qaeda. Well, the step to how 
the people that crafted that same narrative, the their precursor narrative to that in these same circles responsible for Dark Winter is that Saddam Hussein um, is obtaining knowledge about bioterror uh, and bioweapons from people who left the Bryoparpera uh, program that uh, that Alabac was was partially uh, leading, right? Yeah. Um, and so that having the Russian involvement there helps them with their preconstructed narrative that this is someone who left the Soviet Union. Because this is also, if you really want to get into the nuts and bolts of this, this goes back to like the Sam Nunn, uh, Nunn Lugar Act stop, uh, stuff. Sam Nunn being president during. Dark Winter, and their whole thing was to basically get a bunch of U.S. money to turn uh, different installations previously used in that program in the Soviet Union to start working for Western pharmaceutical companies, um, and or or become like the Lugar centers that are basically satellites of the U.S. unofficial uh, bioweapons program in Soviet former Soviet Union states. Um, it's it, it's all tied up in that. It's a uh, um, but basically it was to get more funding from that saying, if we don't do that, all of these scientists will go, uh, go aid rogue regimes and spread their knowledge of bioweapons to rogue regimes like Saddam or, uh, North Korea and all of this stuff, right? So it's, it's a very persistent, uh, narrative. So, um, all yeah. right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I guess I just didn't really. I guess I'll, I'll just just to sum this up, this this part of what I'm presenting is just that these hoax letters and the real letters were clearly linked. So to even call them hoax letters, I think is almost like a misnomer. It's like this was, I believe now it's part of the same overall crime. Um, and I think the only way we're really going to get any further on this, because obviously for some reason, and my theory is that maybe the Hatfield lawsuits made it harder to get a hold of these other hoax letters. Luckily, the St. Petersburg Times posted this one originally. Now, I've actually called pretty much everyone I could in St. Petersburg to see if anyone has a copy of the letter inside. But since we have the envelope already, we have the real, the supposedly real envelopes, you know, as I'm showing here, I believe this is probably enough information at least to get a handwriting expert's opinion on it, just based on just these two. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, the timing of the mailings, the fact that course. they were one is an uh, anthrax hoax sure. letter and one is an anthrax real letter. They both use block yes. letters. And, and you know, I mean, it, it just it seems feels like it's connected. Yeah, yes. everything tells you it's connected. <laughs> but I guess my thing is, like, I want to strengthen that and make it like as right. bulletproof as possible and be like, look, like, if I can show you know, maybe there's an FBI person out there. I'm not, you know, most people in the government are pieces of shit. I don't have any respect for these people, but maybe there's <laughs> someone out there, maybe Lambert, you know, if he saw this, he'd be like, okay, like, yeah, now like we can use something. I'm that's maybe me being hyper confident about it. But like, if we, I mean, there are handwriting experts out there, you know, who could look yeah, at this. And but give the fact, I think the fact that these St. Petersburg letters have been so like removed from the narrative, the images of them are so hard to find compared to the main ones suggests that maybe there's something there. Um, that's just um, my well, opinion. And it's not just your opinion, Whitney. I mean, I think the reason why I've gone in, in, into this theory at all, that Stephen Hatfield's lawsuits or him being named finger to person of interest has anything to do with this because I have no way. The only connection at all originally was that, yeah, he has properties in Florida. 
they searched his storage container in Florida. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that was connected in any way to, you know, the Miami crime, you know, not Miami, the Boca Raton AMI building crime scene or the St. Petersburg letters. But apparently, and this is actually buried in an anthrax book. And hold on, let me, let me pull this up. Um, if you want to, if you want to say something, it's going to take me a second to pull this up. Okay, sure. Well, most of what I have to say is about um, my stuff. So, what, you know, I'll let you finish uh, what you have to do and then I'll, I'll go through my stuff uh, as quick as I can. Okay. In the interest okay. I found of time. it. Okay. Um, so there was a, there's a random anthrax book that, you know, there's, there's a several, there's maybe like six or seven popular anthrax books you can find on Amazon. Only Graham McQueen's and Philip Saracen's books are actually like really critical of the official narrative in my opinion mm-hmm. the other ones are more true crime tales but in one of them <laughs> i just randomly found this and i think that this this is really interesting so this is from marilyn w thompson's book the killer strain she says in recent years hatfield sometimes listed the family farm mechami oaks as his home address in florida and he kept belongings in a rented storage shed there intrigued by the florida connections to the anthrax death of bob stevens and the two hoax letters mailed from St. Petersburg in October 2001, FBI agents during the summer of 2002 sifted several times, sifted several, <laughs> sifted several times through Hatfield's Florida shed. So in case people didn't catch that, according to Marilyn Thompson, the FBI went through Stephen Hatfield's stuff because they believed there was something to the St. Petersburg letters. So, this is actually the only evidence I've found at all, Whitney, that the FBI had any interest in the St. Petersburg letters. So we know this is, I think, confirmatory evidence that we know they already were, were looking at them. And maybe that was part of their impetus for going after Hatfield. So I need to find more in that with that specifically, because that's very interesting, because Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, that, who made that timeline I was showing you earlier, has been smeared into the ground after she went after Hatfield. If I'm not mistaken, she was involved in some of these meetings with like Jerome Howard and Bill Patrick and the Clinton administration about bioterror. And it looks like she was sort of in that circuit, but was a dissenter or wasn't willing to uh, be part of the boys club, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Wild card. What's interesting too, is the weekly standard actually wrote a pretty in-depth smear piece about her, but not just because she was accusing Hatfield. Their smear piece was more like, She's a crazy kook conspiracy theorist for saying this is like an inside job. And there's a pretty big... Uh, <laughs> but the anthrax attacks were, yeah, even according no, it's funny to the official in this, narrative. In the same oh, article... Thanks, Crystal. Yeah, Fuck in the you. Same, same article, they're also saying, well, how do we know Saddam didn't do it still? Like, they're still saying that in like, 2002. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, well, they, they, they were trying really hard because 2002 is when the, the Dark Winter co-authors uh, who go on to... One of them joins the CIA and the other one does Event 201. Um, uh, they were saying in 2002, oh, the fact that one of the uh, 9-11 hijackers was being treated for lesions in a hospital is proof that they were tied to the anthrax attacks. And that evidence was like super flimsy. And, you know, they, they, they went ham on that. Yeah. Um, what's weird, Whitney, is actually, I found something really bizarre about that. It's a National Academy of Sciences report in 2011 that was yeah show that the fbi's evidence was, was full of data. shit yeah was full of shit yeah in that report they they admit that the fbi did um swabs on the remains of united on the hijackers remains in the united 93 crash scene to find anthrax 
So the FBI, apparently the FBI actually was doing that. So like me, right after 9-11? Apparently so, which is That's interesting. Well, yeah, when you're talking about foreknowledge of the anthrax attacks and yeah. Mm-hmm. Which makes it no is. sense considering that they didn't even get access to the AMI building as a crime scene to like swab it. I mean, it, it doesn't even make any sense why they would go to Pennsylvania and swab microscopic human remains for anthrax, but yet they would let David Pecker of AMI just like not let them access the building. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's you can't swab in here, even though the first anthrax death happened here. You can't come in. Uh, that's normal. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you what else is in that building. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I, could, I could finish off my just what I want to lay out by talking about AMI because David Pecker um, is the he's the CEO of AMI. He purchased this, he did this giant media buyout of all these tabloids under the umbrella of American Media Inc., which included The Sun, The Star, The Inquirer, um, The Globe, not The Globe, that's Murdoch. Like all the, Amer- basically like every American tabloid you can think of, he he managed to this giant buyout. And he's not like an oligarch per se. He's an interesting, he's in an interesting class of a uh, person in the United States where he's he's a power broker, like big power player guy, but he's only, his net worth is only like 11 million, but his media influence is like enormous. I mean, he was almost like trying to be like a competitor to Rupert Murdoch kind of like in the United States. And he did succeed. You can almost credit uh, David Packer, uh, David Peckers for um, Arnold's uh, governor run. He basically created an empty lane. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger runs for governor and the tabloids don't say a peep about him, you know, running up to his governor. And that was all thanks to David Pecker. So there's the things that David Pecker really managed to pull off. You know, he buried, we, we, you probably heard stories about he buried the Karen McDougal thing for Donald Trump. He's been involved in some of those blackmail type things. Uh, like yeah, but well, that's how the National Choir has worked since Roy, Roy Cohn's best friend, Gene Pope Jr., like took it over and made it what, you know, the tabloid it, it is known to be. And, uh, they've always been doing that since then. And and yeah. Gene Pope Jr.'s whole thing that he learned from his father and that whole uh, NYC, uh, you know, uh, cesspool is that, you know, it's all about making deals, you know, whether it's between illegitimate crime figures or legitimate businessmen or the, you know, the people in between or whatever. It's just uh, the real power isn't behind the scenes deal making you know, and king making and all of this stuff. And that sounds a lot like what David Pecker, who basically took it over, um, you know, is, is, is doing, uh, <laughs> is doing there too. Um, pretty nuts. So um, is there anything else you um, want to go over before I get to my stuff? Cause we are. Yeah. Uh, I, just really, yeah. Just okay. really quickly. This, I'll just end the, the thing on the AMI thing. He inherited it. So I, I don't know the inner workings of like how much he had to do with the inquirer sort of blackmail racket. But we know that he inherited all their photos. And some of those included like the $4 million valued photo of Elvis in his coffin um, that was very controversial, which oddly, the only connection I can find is Stevens and all of this is the Elvis photo because that was involved. That got like enmeshed in the Rudy Giuliani lawsuit when he came and cleaned up the building later. That's a whole Ah. other story. But I'll just end this by saying that David Pecker somehow... He and I don't know if this is this is kind of a blackmail thing, too, because Jeb Bush, you know, obviously governor of Florida at the time, 
David Pecker also sort of created an open lane for Jeb Bush. No tabloid attacks on him. There was a lot of rumors out there that Jeb Bush was cheating on his wife at the time. Tabloids didn't talk about it. Now there was also a lot about Jeb Bush's kids being nuts. Oh, and that's that yeah. And that got into the tabloids. So it was almost like there's a weird juxtaposition where the tabloids would talk shit about Jeb's kids, but then leave him alone. And apparently mm-hmm. that was like a deal that was okay with Jeb because Jeb was sort of in tight with David Pecker. Now, when the FBI comes back in 2002, and it seems like the timeline matches up with them coming back to look at Hatfield's shed. They're like, okay, now we need, now we feel like we need to look at your building a year after Robert Stevens died. So for some reason, a year after they're like, now we want to look at your building. It's been quarantined this whole time. It's been closed. So David Pecker arranges this meeting with Jeb Bush, with um, Bill Nelson, I believe the Senator of, or congressman of that Florida district and the mayor of Boca Raton, they sit down for a meeting and David Pecker brings in these really big wig lawyers and the FBI is there with them. And, you know, there's all this pressure where basically the FBI is seemingly put in this position where they acquiesce to every single demand David Pecker makes, which is you do not take anything. You do not look at anything in the building that I say you can't look at. You can only take and look at the files and swab places and collect evidence in places that I give you permission to. So what this means is that the AMI CEO, David Pecker, literally blocked, and the FBI allowed them to. I mean, the FBI could have said no. Let, let them uh, block the entire crime scene. The FBI never had access to the full crime scene, and they allowed that. And David Peck, and that's on record, actually, in Robert Gray Smith's a book about the anthrax attacks is that David Pecker somehow got this gentlemanly agreement. I mean, it's actually in writing somewhere, apparently. And you can actually see the count of what the FBI was able to take. So who knows? I mean, he could, David Pecker could have said, yeah, there's a lot of sensitive information, journalistic integrity. I don't want you to look there, but I mean, it's awfully trusting. <laughs> How do they know that David Pecker wasn't involved? I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, there could have been fingerprints on something that David Pecker didn't want them to take. The CDC was the only investigatory group in there originally, and all they did was swab for anthrax spores. The FBI went in a year later to do the same, and they didn't find anything new. In fact, the FBI admits that they never even found a link from, and this is another important thing that blows open, I think, the whole investigation. They claim they can find spores linking cross-contamination mail all over the East Coast. There's no link between the Miami Postal Hub and New Jersey or anywhere. There's no spore trail going from the Florida crime scene anywhere to the East Coast, postal areas. So that's a missing link, and they admit that. So, I mean, it's just, it's it's wild, Whitney, how many holes there are in this, even before it gets to Bruce Ivins. Uh, um, yeah. How many, I mean, they destroyed the, the, they destroyed the Iowa, University of Iowa Ames database on like October 10th. Yeah, really soon after it was said, this is an AIM strain of the anthrax. Exactly. Uh, the FBI tells the university, destroy your AIM strain database, uh, allegedly so further attackers couldn't use it, but by also destroying the evidence they would later need um, <laughs> to find out where it came from. That's normal. Um, all right. So, um, well, if it's okay, I think there's a pretty good uh, segue there from Bob Stevens. Uh, to what I want to talk about, because um, his wife, right, Maureen Stevens, I think is uh, her name, she ended up suing, uh, she and her lawyers ended up suing Battelle, um, apparently because they think they were involved 
even though uh, the FBI official story says, no, 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 it's just Bruce Ivins and no one else. And it came from Fort Detrick, Maryland. Um, you know, uh, obviously she had an interest in investigating it as a, a widower, a, 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 you know, as part of the result of the attacks followed all the evidence and investigations and lack thereof very closely. And she seemed to suspect um, that they were involved somehow. So I think uh, if it's okay with you, I would like to sort of uh, get into some of the work I've done on um, people, the network that I think is much more likely to have been responsible um, than Bruce Ivins, because keep in mind all the experts that looked at this, the trustworthy ones, said there's no way one person did this. Uh, it was it needed one of the one of five, I think five or six people in the United States could have pulled this off with a complete lab um, working under them and a year's time to produce some of the. Uh, <clears throat> the anthrax that was used in the attacks. One of those experts is this Bill Patrick guy. And so that's why I think he's like extra sus. <laughs> uh, and because he has all these classified, yeah, I think he died in like 2010, around yeah. the same Bruce Ivins did ironically, um, but under very different circumstances. Um, <clears throat> just crazy dude. Um, yeah, so if that's all right, I'll just go ahead and um, get into some of my stuff. Yeah, if I need to, if I need to bounce um, unexpectedly, the only I just wanted to show one more thing on the map before I do. So if it, if it's easy to pull up, if not, that's cool too. I can just okay. Well, you just back. tell me when you you can just say when you have to go, and I can uh, just show my stuff to people watching the stream. Cool. Uh, cool. Though I think you you'll be interested no, in I'm, it. Looking <laughs> around, yeah. Okay, so um, well, I guess let's start off since I talked about Bill Patrick with uh. Bill Patrick's obituary, just so you can get a, a background on him. Uh, okay, so this is when he died in, yeah, 2010. Uh, Mr. Patrick made germ weapons for the U.S. military from 51 to 69 when it was shut down. President Nixon uh, cut him out of his job, which he loved. Um, he produced lots of deadly agents like anthrax, blah, blah, blah. He has five secret patents, uh, which, are, you know, are about anthrax. Um and he became, after Nixon uh, nixed his bioweapons job, he became, uh, he, he worked for the government as a private consultant. Okay, he consulted for the Secret Service, testified before Congress, worked with the FBI, and helped the CIA. He's very cozy with the CIA. Here's some interesting stuff about what kind of a, a cool guy he was. His business card bore a skull and bones, and atop his stationery was a drawing of the Grim Reaper with a scythe labeled Biological Warfare and the figure's outstretched arm sowing germs. Okay, this is the guy who's supposed to be like biodefense. He's he's obsessed with bioweapons from his Fort Detrick days. You find other stuff about this guy. He's like, my favorite memories are when we... Uh, pretended to put anthrax on the New York subway uh, back when the bioweapons program was still alive. Those were the good old days. I mean, this guy's nuts. Um, anyway, he, he turned germs into, uh, found in nature into dangerous weapons, a big gain of function guy back before it was cool. Um, he led a team of 80 scientists before it was shut down. Um, and then of course, after he leaves government service uh, in 86, uh, he becomes convinced more than ever that the threat of bioterror was rising. Uh, we'll get more into that later in his uh, Iraq visits um, in a second. But to end his obituary, Mr. Patrick expresses no regrets about his arms work, saying he was comfortable with memories of killing animals and finding new ways to produce death. Um, this is a, a fun dude. 
Yeah, this is a fun dude. Well, just wait till you see some of his other uh, his other quotes. There's this New Yorker article with him and Ken Alibek, who I mentioned earlier, and they're just like, uh, well, I, I showed way, you some of them the other day. Uh, they're Ken, nuts. Ken Alibek is actually makes an appearance in the miniseries. I, he's in the preview clip for it, actually. <laughs> oh, uh, that's yeah. kind of shocking to me. Yeah. Um, all right, so this is a part three of Engineering Contagion, which you can find at my site, Investigative Series Engineering Contagion, um, which is mainly about this uh, piece of crap, Robert Cadlick, who, if you don't know who he was, uh, he is the architect of the entire uh, COVID-19 response under the Trump administration and did the Crimson Contagion uh, simulation, which took place for most of the year of 2019 um, regarding a pandemic that comes from China, spreads through the uh, air uh, travel uh, network, international uh, travel network, uh, and involved very cozy ties with uh, Moderna, uh, actually, in the lead up to COVID-19. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so that's why he's relevant today. This is about his background in anthrax attack stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> and I guess the other thing uh, important about Cadlick um, is that Dark Winter, which we referenced several times, the name Dark Winter of the exercise comes from a line that Robert Cadlick says in it. Um, because there's these fake news clips. And so he's one of the experts interviewed in the fake news clip. And he says something, this is going to be a dark winter for America. And that's where the name of the exercise comes from. It's from uh, this guy, fun dude. Anyway, so Robert Cadlick, uh, before the Gulf War, was at Joint Special Operations Command. Um, and basically, um, William C. Uh, Patrick III, who we just talked about, um, became convinced after these guys, I talked about this on your podcast uh, uh, when I was on there uh, last year, basically these these Iraqi guys uh, were kidnapped in Iraq and their blood was forcibly drawn and it was determined they had immunity to anthrax. I guess they decided to look for that randomly, apparently on Patrick's advice, who was advising them. And that's what spawns the uh, uh, inoculation of people with anthrax vaccine in the early 90s that later gets tied to Gulf War syndrome and covered up, essentially. Um, so basically, Patrick um, advises the, is advising the Pentagon about all of this. For those that don't remember, the head of the Pentagon at the time is Dick Cheney, okay, um, under under Bush Sr. So this is, you know, Dick Cheney sort of pops up through, through this story. And so just based on Patrick's warning that, you know, it, and apparently the blood drawn from these Iraqi guys didn't actually show that there was a bioweapons anthrax anything. It could have been from like exposure to some sort of fertilizer that's related to anthrax and all this other stuff. But anyway, Patrick said it. And so anthrax vaccine uh, is inoculated into everyone just because this guy said something. Right. So he has a lot of clout. Um <clears throat> And yeah, Cadillac later says that um, there was no definitive proof um, about uh, Iraq having biological WMDs uh, during the Gulf War or afterwards. Um, and they, but he does try and say that Iraq had acquired lots of anthrax and botulism toxin, but that was actually uh, sold to Saddam Hussein by the U.S. government. Uh, and the guy uh, who later investigates anthrax vaccine. Uh, ties to Gulf War syndrome for the U.S. government was on the board of this uh, American type culture cell collection uh, that gave anthrax to Saddam Hussein, basically. Um, 
So, uh, and also Donald Rumsfeld uh, was involved in that as well, who later becomes Secretary of Defense under Bush, obviously. Um, and uh, the guy I just mentioned uh, was Joshua Letterberg, who comes up quite a bit in this stuff. Um, okay, so Cadillac, uh, William C. Patrick III and Randall Larson, who is one of the other Dark Winter co-authors, there, there's four, Mark Demers, who sort of doesn't appear to be that involved in, in stuff compared to the other three, uh, Tara O'Toole, Thomas Inglesby, and, and Randy Larson. Randy Larson, Robert Cadillac, very close. Randy Larson, also very close uh, to William C. Patrick III. Um, <clears throat> uh, so Cadillac and, and Patrick go and try and find uh, WMDs in Iraq in 94. Uh, they don't succeed, uh, but they, they keep spinning this narrative that it's there. And when they, uh, anytime there's congressional testimony pointing to these weapons uh, inspections, um, about there being some sort of proof that isn't actually proof. They reference stuff Patrick just said um, about, you know, these visits and stuff. And so there, a lot of this stuff about bioterror WMDs and stuff with Iraq, like hinges on what Patrick has, has said to people. But um, I don't want to spend too much time on this stuff, but this is sort of, um, if you're interested in uh, evolution of how this um, anthra mandatory anthrax vaccine campaign starts, um, and it was promoted by Secretary of Defense under uh, Clinton, William Cohen, who goes on ABC News uh, with a five pound bag of uh, sugar in like 1997 saying like this much anthrax is going to kill everyone because um, they were really hyping anthrax back in the Clinton administration. I want people to remember this and, and, and talking about Saddam Hussein. That's a really important takeaway. They were setting up the narrative, not just from dark winter in June 2001 to September 2001. You know, they were at back from 95 onwards. Uh, well, it was. Do you know about Richard Clark? Uh, he was really taking a lead on this, too, as Bill Clinton's counterterrorism guy. He's if you look on C-SPAN, Richard Clark was talking about anthrax more than almost anyone else during the Clinton era and, and talking about it in regards to like catastrophic, you know, cartoonish yeah. terrorism from Scud missiles and stuff like that. And the other people you have promoting it during this time that are advising the Clinton administration on it, Jerome Hauer, mm -hmm. uh, and also Bill Patrick. And so allegedly the book that really got Bill Clinton scared of the, of the bioterror threat is called uh, The Cobra Effect. And it has this virus, uh, and it was written by Richard, uh, the scary virus in it. It was written by Richard Preston who was actually very close to Bill Patrick and Bill Patrick designed the disease described in the book. That's uh, allegedly scared the shit out of Bill Clinton. Um, he was also during this period advising Jerome Hauer, who was in charge of the office of emergency management. Um, and also obviously involved with the, the Giuliani stuff to a degree. He was advising New York city specifically and Jerome Hauer is a recurring 9-11 2001 anthrax attack. Uh, figure for more information on that you can refer back to my series and um some of the podcasts robbie and i have done together uh on this for more fun jerome howard uh information um also, there's also, quite a lot there mm -hmm. west nile virus is another interesting rabbit hole that giuliani and jerome howard yes for, and Bill Patrick was advising during this period, and I, I believe was also doing contract work on bioweapon stuff in and around New York during that time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. The guy is so sus. We'll get into it later. Anyway, um, mm -hmm. I guess so this is already what I mentioned, that Bill Clinton was publicly warning in 98. Uh, we have to confront, the U.S. has to confront the new hazards of bioweapons. Saddam Hussein specifically is developing bioweapons. 
uh, despite having no intelligence to back up those claims. Sound familiar? Bush did it next. Um, uh, here's the Cobra event thing for more information. Yeah, Patrick, at the time he advised uh, Richard Preston's book, was also advising and working for the CIA, FBI, and military intelligence at closed-door meetings with Clinton on biological weapons. Um, and he's one of the guys, this whole network, uh, Alabek, Patrick, Cadlick, all of these guys are the ones that like to say, um, you can make anthrax in your garage. You can buy all this stuff online. Anyone can make it. Uh, that's that, that at the time uh, was complete crap. Uh, and it was just, but it was a really common narrative from these people to try and oh, be yeah. like, you know, it ties into the war on terror. Anyone can be a terrorist. Anyone can be a bioterrorist. The bathroom. Um, yeah. It's like the bathroom bioterrorism narrative, but yeah, the Cobra comes from event, these guys. Yeah. The Cobra event story. I first learned about it in this really excellent book is one of the best books written about anthrax called anthrax bioterror as fact and fantasy by Philip Saracen. And he, he goes into sort of a lot of people in the conspiracy movement like to call it like pre-programming or whatever, but he goes into a lot of the stuff like in the Clinton era you're talking about and Bill Patrick and, but he, he tackles it more from like the psychological, like hype angle. Like how did this affect, you know, these policymakers who were getting sort of influenced by the hype by people like Bill Patrick. Um, and then how did that right. trickle to the media? And he sort of traces that. So that's, that's a whole interesting angle of it, but I just want to throw that book out there for people who might not have heard of it. No, great. Um, so in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over this. This is Cadillac fear-mongering about anthrax in 1998. Around the same time, all of these guys were, um, including Ken Alabek, who I'll get to in a second. And by this time, Ken Alabek is head of the bioweapons program at Battelle Memorial Institute. Um, just going to leave that there, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, because, well, you, you can see it here. Um, he was testifying to Congress program manager Battelle Memorial Institute. But this article also from 1998, implies that Ken Alabek is out of a job. Uh, that's Alabek and Patrick together being best friends. It implies, quoting Alabek, that he's out of a job uh, because the CIA has uh, stopped funding his credit cards. And Bill Patrick is like, well, I thought the agency would do better by you, Ken. Uh, and it's just, it, they're so inside. So wait, I'm, I'm happy to share this stuff about how crazy they are because I've had to just keep it to myself for like a year. But let me <laughs> just really quickly, just so I understand this. So Jerome Hauer, Robert Cadlick, Ken Alibic were all uh, executive level people at Battelle and in bio emergent biosolutions. Uh, Cad Cadlick's not. Cadlick's at the oh. National War College and he gets really big uh, so once was anthrax happens. Uh, or sorry, once 9-11 happens, once 9-11 happens, he becomes the top uh, bioterror advisor to Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld right wow. after 9-11 between then and the anthrax attacks. Um, what, is, what is his relationship to Emergent? Or didn't he have something to do with Biothrax? Yeah, yeah. But that officially pops up uh, later uh, after oh, this okay. whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. um, <clears throat> so that's not quite at the time. What, the Emergent connection that's important at the time of the Anthrax attacks is an Emergent Biosolution producer of the Anthrax vaccine uh, has their factory shut down their license removed. They can't produce the vaccine. They can't sell it. They have all of these problems they can't fix because of the safeguards in the system, the FDA or whatever, um, to keep unsafe products from being sold. They can't get around those. Oh, no, for them, bad for business. Uh, the anthrax attacks make all of that concern disappear, despite the fact that a government uh, accountability office report says 85 percent 
of people that got that vaccine had adverse events and they were mandating this in the military, 85%. And so a lot of um, uh, it, like, uh, what, what's the term for when someone leaves the military? I'm like blanking on it discharge or whatever honorably, uh, well honorably yeah discharge. like people leaving the military a high number of that was cited as the anthrax vaccine or pilots mm. leaving the reserve and all of this stuff was because the amount of adverse events was so high and so september 2001 was when the pentagon was going to issue a report saying this is how we do the anthrax vaccine program without emergent biosolutions and of course the, the part of the pentagon that was hit in addition to being the accounting office uh, looking for the missing trillion announced the day before in September 10th is also responsible for producing the report on emergent biosolutions. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld steps in and says, well, after the anthrax attacks, we have to work with a uh, bioport. They were called at the time. We have to work with bioport because no one's as far along as they are. And they just uh, basically <laughs> steamroll through all the obstacles and concerns that existed before. Uh, and, you know, not only does Emergent Biosolutions get uh, start lobbying for mandatory vaccination of the military, but also first responders, uh, essential workers, policemen, healthcare workers, uh, they start pushing for mandatory anthrax uh, vaccines um, <clears throat> for all of those guys. Um, <laughs> anyway. Are you um, going chronologically through this? Do you not want me to mention something later in the timeline? Or No, you can if you like, want. Um, this part is just a... I just wanted to get uh, through how Randy Larson and Cadillac were working together. Um, and then uh, they're all teaching at the National War College. So that's how Cadillac gets in the circle is through the National War College. Uh, Randy Larson uh, and puts him in touch with Bill Patrick and they all become, you know, best buds, basically. Go is, on. <laughs> is it already established or did you already say, and am, am I wrong about this, that um, Bettel basically uh, acquired uh, Emergent at some point? Well, they, they teamed up. They yeah, I'll out. get okay. to that in a second. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're not, so um, they don't own them. They, they're separate companies. Still. So before the whole thing I talked about was September 2001 and that happened, um, the, the, the issues with this anthrax vaccine program were known years before. And so they, uh, one of the ways the Pentagon goes about fixing, trying to fix uh, this issue is to have them team up with Battelle. And so Battelle and Bioport team up. Um, to save the anthrax vaccine program, probably like I think about a year before the anthrax attacks themselves uh, take place. And so the gain of function experiments that were going on in Battelle that were funded by both the Pentagon and the CIA with anthrax um, that are talked about, even Judith Miller talks about them, actually, um, in some of her reporting that were, were being overseen by Ken Alavec, right, were being done directly uh, in connection with the the, the Bioport people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. convenient yeah. <laughs> yeah. i think I, before before i bounce uh in a, a little bit i'm, I'm going to stick around for a little bit but i, I do want to um show people just how uh many Battelle uh locations are in florida and i also sure. think i can well, uh stop sharing my screen if you want to show that really quick i was oh, just yeah. gonna uh no, the no, one no, thing it, i wanted to say before going back to Battelle, that's okay yeah. So I've mentioned Randy Larson a couple times as a Dark Winter co-author, but he matters because he was head of this Answer Institute for Homeland Security thing that was set up in really in October 1999, but they didn't launch it until like April 2001. And when they did launch it, they they put out articles preparing for the next Pearl Harbor. It wasn't just PNAC using that terminology in the lead up to 9-11, right? Um, and yeah. uh, Answer was headed by a top CIA lady, uh, Tara O'Toole from Dark Winter was there also. 
um, uh, Robert Cadlick, um, let's see, um, around the same time they're launching and Randy Larson is working with Robert Cadlick. Um, Cadlick puts out um, this article that basically, let's see, uh, calls for the creation of DHS before DHS was made. And this NHSA thing that Cadillac makes the blueprint for here actually is uh, introduced as a law by Mac Thornberry, the uh, the congressman, and is later used as the foundation for DHS. Um, so that's, uh, you can credit Robert Cadillac with a lot of uh, what would become DHS, at least putting it out there before 9-11. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, go ahead. This is where I get back to uh, Patrick and, and Battelle and Alabek. So um, you go ahead and show your Battelle stuff. I'll, uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me. So, yeah. Uh, that basically, I mean, I, I didn't realize before going into this that Battelle was uh, such a military focused company. Yeah. They were more focused on like, you know, the environment or something. I, I just didn't realize the they're big they also yeah. I, I do want to mention team up a lot with the wexner medical center in ohio there's oh, there's shady ohio west jefferson institute that uh-huh. alabeck was at that's con- most believed to be connected to the anthrax attacks works directly with all this wexner funded stuff in ohio uh for so people interested in epstein stuff yeah mm-hmm. yeah so there's i mean this is just an example of how many Battelle um locations there are and just in florida um just so people understand i mean and this could be why we still don't really know exactly why maureen stevens decided to sue Battelle, what what she who she was instructed by or what she learned um but i think it's safe to say that because of the amount of uh labs in florida that might have been why and in fact I think this address, this one I'm pulling up right here, this one um, is supposed to be an environmental research facility that's like on some swampy area, might mm-hmm. have been the one she sued directly. Um, and I, I'm not 100% sure of that, but oh, yeah, there is, a, there is a strange amount of Battelle labs in Florida. And that's one of the things that just randomly popped out to me about this DEA memo about the Israeli art students is they're you know, saying that they're interested in chemists who work for the DEA. Well, you could also sort of find the hmm. Israeli art students hanging out in areas that are near some of these labs. So I guess one of my speculative theories is where some of these chemists who work for these labs also being tracked by some of these students. You know, if, if the DA claims they were tracking chemists for the DA, you know, I would imagine they would maybe also be tracking some of these other people, possibly. Um, but just a really bizarre coincidence um, that I wanted to leave your audience with is the last thing I show them on the map is uh, something that I just don't really know what to make heads or tails of. Um, But, you know, one of my working theories about the anthrax attacks is that maybe, uh, you know, that a lot of the collateral damage was sort of meant as a distraction and and maybe some of these victims were actually directly targeted somehow, which Mm -hmm. I know sounds maybe like a, maybe a little bit of a far out theory. Uh, But if this was more of an operation, then who's to say that some of these people were not, um, you know, directly potentially targeted uh for for anthrax um so i guess what i wanted to show you here is um <laughs> that robert cadlick uh, this guy who still works for what's the department he works for now health and well he, he's not yeah he was assistant secretary for preparedness and response okay. um at hhs which is actually 
that assistant secretary position, he essentially created and molded over a period of 20 years from 2001 on by writing legislation and being a consultant, all the stuff, and then conveniently occupies that when COVID hits. Um, but he's not he's not in HHS anymore. When Trump left office, he left, too. So, OK, um, well, this is this is just one random you know, thing I found totally unexpectedly on the map, you know, after I started inputting all the anthrax victims, you know, known locations, addresses, and, you know, some of these Battelle people, um, some of these people you've been researching, uh, known publicly listed addresses. This one randomly came up, pretty creepy to me. Don't know what it means. Could be a total coincidence, but Robert Cadlick lives, or he lived uh, just a few blocks away from Ernesto Blanco, the man who almost died, uh, who worked for AMI. Wow, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Inc. of Anthrax. So I don't know, just creepy. I don't know if it means anything, but again, there is a lot of Battelle activity and Robert Cadlick has a lot of properties really close to these crime scenes as well. So I, Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised he owns so many properties in Florida. I mean, that seems a little weird for a guy who's like a career Washington, D.C. dude that he'd have all these different, well, whatever. I mean, I yeah, I don't really know what to make of... Um, make of that but it is it is interesting um, that's, that's all i got yeah as far as as far as the Battel stuff that's that's an early stages so if anyone out there listening knows of any other Battel related or any of these you know emergent anything in florida um or anywhere else that might be interesting to do on a map um i'd be happy to you know do whatever so all right. Well, if it's okay, then yeah. well, I want I want you to see some of this stuff before you go. So I'm going to try and get to the crazy stuff. Yeah, no, 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 you'll no, get a no, kick no. out of no, it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Okay. No, I'm All right. Uh, can we get my screen back up then instead of Robbie's? Yeah, close, close it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Alrighty. So, um, <clears throat> where was I here? Oh yeah. So I mentioned earlier William Patrick uh, vets Ken Alabek when he defects from the Soviet Union. Uh, Robert Cadillac says during two, 2014 congressional testimony that he was involved in those um, uh, debriefing efforts to an extent, ascertaining the truth about uh, the Soviet weapons program that involved Alabek's defection and Bill Patrick and all this stuff. Um, and uh, by the way, Alabek's claims, uh, you know, through uh, the Iraq war and stuff were treated as serious by the national security community. But afterwards, they were like, this guy just makes shit up. Because basically, Alabek realized that he became more popular, uh, the more crazy the shit was that came out of his mouth was, whether it was true or not. And he realized they'd believe whatever he said about Russia. Uh, <laughs> and so he pretty much did that for like a long time until they like figured out at least some of them anyway. That he was like the curveball. I mean, he was kind of like almost like this guy, like that guy. Who was that guy in Iraq that was just feeding them all this garbage and making it seem like Saddam was doing way crazier things. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember yeah. his name, but yeah, he's like one of those guys. I mean, he he would just like make shit up. Yeah. Uh, he's, a, he's a pretty wild, wild dude. Um, anyway, this is about uh, non-Lugar uh, FBI, uh, uh, NTI stuff. I'll get to that um, another time. The day of 9-11, uh, Cadlick and Randy Larson were going to start a course on Homeland Security at the National War College that was all about Dark Winter. They never taught that. Um, Immediately after 9-11, Cadillac becomes special advisor to Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz, um, and he actually gets in charge of investigating the anthrax bentonite claim, um, which is pretty significant because that was used by the media to tie anthrax to Iraq. And it actually uh, originates from this Peter Jarling guy who, by the way, um, was, was being cited uh, very heavily by the New York Times 
uh, about the, the main, uh, efforts to make a mandatory smallpox vaccine in the Bush administration, uh, which is another interesting tie in here that a lot of the same people involved in this anthrax stuff were also pushing for smallpox vaccination right mm-hmm. from 9-11 on when they were also like foreknowledge, advanced fear mongering about anthrax. They were also pushing for smallpox vaccination like right away. And there's That's some clear. other interesting that's the big here. missing link here, I think. I think, and I want to talk to you about this after this broadcast with you, but I think that's the big missing link here uh, that I want to see more people focusing on, which is this smallpox mandatory vaccination push that was piggybacking off bioterrorism. That's basically the bridge to what's happening now with COVID. I mean, it's kind of yeah. Like, really One is. thing I found there preparing this that I thought was really crazy. Well, first of all, this Peter Jarling guy that was the bentonite anthrax guy uh, was also. Do you see that army scientist who was the leading smallpox researcher um, okay. for for the for the military? But also Margaret Hamburg, who's in Dark Winter, uh, also part of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, FDA commissioner under Obama, involved with the. Uh, H1N1, a swine flu vaccination thing that had a lot of uh, adverse reactions um, and was very problematic and rushed. Um, and she was actually in charge of the smallpox vaccination stuff for HHS right before all of this happened. Uh, in the before Dark Winter, that was her claim to fame was the the smallpox uh, vaccination thing that we were just you know talking about, which is interesting. Um, she now works for the Gates Foundation on their scientific advisory council. Um, anyway, so um, let's see. Oh, yeah, this is about how Ken Alibek was also involved in the push for um, the smallpox vaccination. And the contract for the smallpox vaccine goes to Dyneport, sister company to Bioport, now Emergent Biosolutions. Bioport and Dyneport are only different because a part owner of Dyneport is Dynecore. Uh, the very controversial military contractor uh, involved in child trafficking and lots of other fuckery um, that got exposed during the Iraq war. But they were all part of this uh, smallpox thing together. So you have Bioport on the anthrax vaccination side and then sister company Dyneport on the smallpox side. So I definitely think it's a missing link in a lot of ways. Yeah. And here's Margaret Hamburg oversaw the smallpox effort. Um, <clears throat> oh, that's yeah, some other stuff. I didn't mm-hmm. realize how quickly this was put into action. Actually, what's I'm starting to dig into the UCLA's epidemiology section on their website. They have a whole timeline, actually. It's the only timeline of article archives I've seen of the Bush administration's push for the smallpox vaccination program. And it's extremely comprehensive. And there was controversy quite often where a lot of medical professionals were constantly pushing back. And it's like the complete opposite was happening now. Like, there was like lots of groups of like big time doctors getting together and saying, this is a bad idea. We can't do this. There's no, it's like totally unnecessary. And the mentality, you know, actually seemed to have put the brakes somewhat. There was enough public pressure where it seems to have stalled it. Um, you know, and, and compared to now, it's like, there's no, there's no pushback, you know, it's like, but anyways. Okay. So I want to, I want to get to some of the stuff before you go, but basically this is about um, Hatfill up here. I'm not going to go through it too much because I already mentioned that uh, Stephen Hatfill was William Patrick's protege. They were described as being like father, like son. Hatfill would drive Bill Patrick to his jobs. Uh, Patrick worked for SAIC where both Hatfill and Jerome Howard were working. Jerome Howard and Hatfill totally knew each other. Um, 
and, and collaborated together. Uh, Hatfield, uh, the jobs he offered to Patrick at consulting at SAIC, performing a study on, quote, a fictional terrorist attack in which an envelope containing weapons grade anthrax is opened in an office. Um, it discussed the danger of anthrax spores through spreading through the air, uh, the requirements of decont for decontamination after various types of attacks, how many grams of anthrax would need to be placed in a standard business envelope in order to conduct such attacks. Um, at the same time he's doing those studies for Hatfield, he's also consulting to Battelle, where Ken Alabeck is the program manager for their bioweapon stuff. Battelle at the time is doing uh, Pentagon gain-of-function research on anthrax because they're scared of some study published by Russian scientists that allegedly showed that uh, they had produced anthrax uh, that didn't work with the bioport, that, that evaded uh, the bioport anthrax vaccine. This all comes from Ken Alabek, by the way, who's in charge of Patel. It's an obvious conflict of interest. He's getting, he's fear-mongering about something so he can get paid to do something at his current job um, because he's Russian, basically, is why they believe him. And he was there before. But as I said later, he gets caught making up everything. Um, <clears throat> So this so anyway, can, can last like two years or something, right? Is it supposed to? And it's a ton. It, it's a ton of doses. Uh, I forget yeah. how many, but it's way more than two. I think it's like five. And like I said, eight, according to the government, eighty-five percent of people that get it have adverse reactions. Uh, that are and some of them are really severe. And it was it, a lot of evidence tying it to Gulf War syndrome, just yeah. really debilitating. Uh, just shows a really big disrespect for uh, veterans, honestly. Who've had to deal with that stuff and have been guinea pigs of the military for a really long time uh, in the CIA and these other things. Anyway, um, <clears throat> don't want to get too off topic there. Um, yeah, so this 1998 article that I mentioned earlier, and you'll probably be gone by the time I get to that, Robbie, but what is that man, it has some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they, um, William Patrick is listed not just as being Alabac's super close friend, they spend Christmas together um, and all of this stuff. But um, William Patrick was doing those SAIC studies for Hatfield about anthrax letters. While he's also consulting for Battelle, Battelle is doing these gain-of-function experiments on anthrax uh, with Alabeck at Battelle, okay? Wow. Um, and those are in connection with the emergent biosolutions bioport stuff. I mean, this is hugely sus, and I think this is why Hatfield was so dangerous to focus in on, because then you get to these guys, and this is really where the fuckery was about. Uh, what's going on. So as you can see here. Well, apparently the supposed... they, they put Bill Patrick under a, a, a polygraph. I, I, yeah, I but who, in, who administered the polygraph, who was right? It? Was it a friend of Bill Patrick? No, we, we don't know, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, none of that's public, right? Who was yeah, in yeah, the yeah. room? Who observed it? I mean, these guys, He, I, Bill Patrick does work for the... Oh. Sorry, Bill Patrick does work for the CIA. He does work for the FBI. He does work for the military. He's like the most spooked up dude, and he has been for a really long time. He's, he advises the president on all this stuff. I mean, you don't think he can get like a little favor called in for a polygraph? Oh, of course. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just so, like, curious I, why he would even, it's yeah, 50, like he would even submit to one. Because like, like, you don't have, you've, you, I think you volunteer to one. I mean, like, I don't. I can't imagine well, somebody had a warrant. If you look at the way this guy talks, he's clearly a sociopath. Oh, and I yeah. think sociopaths that have no emotional response when they lie can pass polygraphs pretty yeah, easily, yeah, yeah. Oh, you yeah. know? So that's my opinion. I give it 50-50, like, okay, shmish, meh, you mm -hmm. know, but the fact he was added the investigation, he never should have been. Anyway, um, the, here, the FBI supposed smoking gun about Ivan's. 
right, is that a flask in Ivan's lab that was labeled RMR1029 was the parent strain, allegedly, of the anthrax used in the attacks, okay? This part's really key for, like, answering why Battelle. Portions of that flask were sent by Ivan's to Battelle's West Jefferson, Ohio facility, where Alabeck and Patrick are doing these gain-of-function anthrax stuff, right? Uh, an analysis of the water used to make the anthrax revealed that the anthrax spores using the attacks had been created in the northeastern U.S., meaning it could have been Battelle, a university lab at in Pennsylvania or Fort Detrick. Um, Meryl Ness, by the way, isn't uh, said that she's found that particular study iffy, but it, it is interesting. The water um, analysis study. Yeah, Who she said it. it uh, I'd have to look again, but okay. the links in there for those that are interested. Um, <clears throat> But I do want to mention that Meryl Nassim, after I wrote this article, said that she wasn't convinced by that study. So anyone that, but there, there's other stuff, as I'll get to in a second. So Patrick's work with Battelle was making gain of function a more important, potent form of anthrax. Um, oh, sorry, uh, talking about, um, this is about Bioport and, and Battelle, uh, the conflicts of interest there. Um, yeah, so the, the deal between Bioport and Battelle gave Battelle immediate exposure to the vaccine it was using in connection with the genetically modified anthrax program in which both Alabek and Patrick were involved. Um, Battelle was lending technical expertise to Bioport. Uh, they uh, were very involved, but very secretive about what their uh, agreement actually was. Um, and then Rumsfeld steps in to save Bioport. Um, I think that's all I really have. Um, on that, beyond the some of the Judith Miller stuff on Patrick and Alabek. Um, but basically, um, those reports were shut down and then restarted after the anthrax attacks. Uh, so that's kind of interesting that the anthrax attacks allowed them to continue uh, those programs after they'd been shut down a couple months before. Um, Did it directly <laughs> play into the passing of the BioShield 1 and 2? Uh, BioShield comes, I think, in 2003 or 2004. Uh, so that's a couple of years after this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was kind of a, I mean, that was essentially a, a bunch of cash injected into emerging, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's a total grift. Um, mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Sorry. This is about the bentonite stuff. So I'm not going to actually get into that because I don't think we really have um, a lot of time, but I do want to say, um, where's the best place to go. Okay. So this, they have this paywalled, um, here's some text of the article, right? Um, Alabac, blah, 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 uh, has a degree in anthrax. <laughs> His degree is <laughs> literally in anthrax, apparently. Um, he made this anthrax. special anthrax strain. Um, and here's them seeding the narrative in the New Yorker, remember, in 1998. The Alabekov strain may be one of the more common bioweapons in the world today. There's no proof of this. It seems plausible that Iraqi biologists, for instance, know the Alabekov formula by now. I mean, they seeded this so long ago before Bush was even in office. Um, what's interesting here is he says that Alabek's special strain of anthrax is secret and involves two unrelated materials mixed with pure powdered anthrax spores. Um, and I think if Battelle really is responsible, that may explain why there were some weird formulations of anthrax totally unheard of at the time, like the one containing silica and some of these other samples that like had these chemicals that didn't make sense to be there. That may be a potential clue. I'm just going to leave that there. 
Anyway, until last week when Ken, in 1998, Ken Alabeck was interviewed on Primetime Live to fearmonger about bioterror. Uh, but before then, he was only known to a few government officials and CIA guys. Um, and this is about him talking with the CIA. Um, let's see. Um, oh, this is where he starts talking about, oh, I wanted to meet Ken Alabeck, but didn't know how. But I figured uh, William C. Patrick III would know him. Um, and then talking about Bill Patrick, um, before Nixon shut down the po program, Bill Patrick was chief of um, product development for bioweapons at Fort Detrick, right? Um, the products Patrick made were powdered spores and viruses loaded into bombs. Fun guy. Uh, are the top bioweapon year in the United States. He loses all his prestige and stuff when Nixon shuts down the program um, and is bitter as hell about it for a really long time. Anyway, here's where he talks about a, he pulls out a small jar of amber brown powder. That's that sandy stuff we were talking about earlier. Here it is. And he chucks it across the table. It rattled and bounced towards the analyst. They jerked away, some leaping to their feet. The jar contained anthrax stimulant, a biopowder essentially identical to anthrax, except it doesn't kill. It's used for experiments in which properties other than infectivity are being tested. I got that through security, by the way, Patrick observed. Um, and then later, <clears throat> this article has been scrubbed, by the way. This is from New York Magazine, a republish of it on longform.com. Since I wrote my engineering contagion thing, it's only available on the way back machine now, but Randy Larson, who's another guy in this, in this circuit does the same thing when he goes to brief Dick Cheney after nine 11 on the dark winter simulation, allegedly. <clears throat> so he goes through the white house. Yeah. He goes through security, blah, blah, blah. He goes inside the building to make, meet Dick Cheney, Tara O'Toole and Thomas Inglesby, our dark winter fun team. Yeah, Tara O'Toole concludes the presentation telling Cheney the country is unprepared for a biological attack. Cheney goes, okay, but what are we looking for? What does a biological weapon look like? Larson reaches into his briefcase and pulls out a small test tube. It looks like this, Mr. Vice President. Inside the tube was a weaponized powder of uh, this bacteria almost genetically identical to anthrax. By the way, I just smuggled this into your office. Like they do the same shtick, right? Um, <laughs> all the, the this, these, all these guys, they have like their little like parlor tricks to like freak out politicians um, and get a bunch of funding for their shit. It's pretty funny um, and also terrifying um, in a sense. Anyway, um, yeah, this is Bill Patrick being a consultant to all this stuff. Um, so In-person in parlor trick version of Operation Dark Winter, like oh, <laughs> yeah, the party yeah. trick version of it. <laughs> Yeah, here's uh, Jerome Hauer talking about you know, head of uh, Rudolph Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management, right? Bill Patrick consulting Hauer and Giuliani on bioterror in the lead up to all of this. The group that would handle a bio bioterror event in New York, should one ever happen, said to me once, Bill Patrick is one of the only guys who can tell us about some of these biological agents. Meaning like he can say anything and they're like, yeah, we believe you, Bill. That's essentially what this what this is. Um, Patrick tells emergency planners what will happen if a biological weapon is released, how many people will die, where they will die, and what the deaths will look like. His reports are classified. Bill Patrick and Ken Alabeck are counterparts. We're close friends. 
Um, and uh, there's another quote in my engineer engineering contagion piece where the, he's like, I wouldn't say we fell in love when they met, but developed immediate respect for each other. Something like they've been best friends because they're like the counterpart of the other one and they're both super seedy dudes. <laughs> But uh, so the Giuliani thing, the Howard stuff to anthrax, you have that circle around with this whole group we're talking about here, right? Bill Patrick is advising uh, those guys and he, he just, they take his word for everything, right? I mean, he's very central to all of this, I think. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one, so, one thing that's a mind winning for me is that the more you talk about Ken Alibic and how suspicious all his ties are to all this, I mean, it does seem like someone who sent out those St. Petersburg letters might have even been trying to think, frame him or make it seem like he was involved. Like just the Russian, the, using the Russian characters. Um, there was even... Well, Alabek was it. trying to say through this whole period that people he used to work with in Russia and the Soviet Union uh, were going to work for rogue regimes. I think they were trying to play that up and be like well it's not just uh not only have they gone to saddam's rogue regime they could have gone to iran's rogue regime or north korea's you know it has a lot of utility for them to do it that way right Mm -hmm. Um, yeah this is where they say uh about alabek the u.s government used to pay him consulting fees but now he's on his own that is a total lie because he's working at patel as a program manager so richard preston literally lies in this article about what Ken Alabek does for a living at the time. Uh, that's normal. Um, and and this that, is where... Mm-hmm. Did you know that he had properties in Florida not too far from Hatfield? Alabek. He's got two, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, they all like to hang out in Florida, all these guys. Um, they're they're a fun bunch. Yeah, this is where uh, Ken Alabek goes into a great detail about how a colleague of his died from some hemorrhaging virus. It's very gross. Um, anyway, I already talked about this stuff earlier. Um, Alabek will not say how he got to the United States. Um, he refuses to say how his defection took place and what happened. It's interesting. Probably um, some kind of private plane smuggled in with a bunch of coke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Florida airport. <laughs> so Bill Patrick, again, he has these five special patents specifically on making bio dust that disperse rapidly in the air and form an invisible sea of particles. The poof of the anthrax, those are all Bill Patrick's patents. Only he really knows how to make those because it says the U.S. government does not want anyone to obtain Patrick's research. They're classified. So remember, you have like, according to, to all these people, five or six people in the country tops that know how to make the anthrax using the attacks that did this cloud stuff. Patrick is probably at the top of that list. And in order to know how to do that, you have to have access to his classified patents. How many people in out of those six or five or whatever had access to, to Patrick's research if the U.S. government's trying to keep it hidden from everyone? I just want to comment on that really quick because what's really interesting, Whitney, is I think now that the hoax letters are the ones that had talcum powder in them that that did that that emulated that effect that had that cloud effect if you actually go back and look at all the witness accounts of the actual real letters the real letters didn't have that visual so whoever sent these hoaxes out from saint petersburg was trying to evoke the bill patrick visual by specifically talcum powder is going to cloud up you could you could have thrown flour in there that won't really go into the air but like talcum powder would you know when you open it up it would look yeah. like that so I, I just something that came well to mind. hatfield and patrick best pals best friends 
you know, father and son, I'm going to drive you to work, Bill. Um, you know, it's, it's normal. Um, this is another part where Bill Patrick, it's pretty interesting, uh, is talking about how uh, some of you guys may know about how the U.S. did nuclear research, very illegal and immoral research on nuclear weapons in the uh, Marshall Islands, um, specifically on like Bikini Atoll. They also did uh, bio, lethal bioweapon experiments there with Bill Patrick uh, during that same period of time. And so anyway. In Bikini in Atoll? Uh, yeah, talking oh, about the jo- specifically the Johnston. Well, this is part of the Marshall Islands, right? So different okay. islands, different atolls. So one of the ones they used for nuke research, and then they sent people back there to, it told them it was safe when it wasn't because they wanted to see what the radiation would do to them over time. Uh, these like innocent Islander people. <sighs> Human experimentation. The U.S. has been doing it a long time. Um, but in addition to that, they were also doing lethal bioweapons research, releasing it on another one of these atolls. And as you can see in the highlighted, well, before the highlighted part, it's talking about how um, they, uh, the way that experiment was done involved this particular phantom jet. And in the highlighted part here, you can say that they're seeding in 1998. Well, in Iraq, they saw an Iraqi phantom jet do something similar. But the difference was Iraq didn't have a pilot. It was a drone. So, you know, Iraq can do this too, but they won't put their pilots at risk and they'll just like, you know, bioterror us into oblivion. That's the implication here. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. This is one of these uh, fun exchanges. Uh, Ken Alabek says to the author of this piece, uh, Ebola pox. This is Alabek talking about the joys of merging smallpox and Ebola. Um <laughs> You know, uh, Ebola pox would make black pox this more deadly form of smallpox um, and talking about how awful it is and it will kill you. And then Bill Patrick goes, Ken, Ken, you've got overkill here. What's the point of creating a bo- Ebola smallpox? I mean, it would be nice to do this from a scientific point of view, sure. But with old fashioned natural smallpox, you can bring society to its knees. This is normal stuff to say. This is normal. This is normal stuff. Um, <clears throat> this is a, a a thing I sent you the other day, Ravi. I don't know if I want to go into, into all of this, but they're talking about, you know, terrorism is the uncontrolled part of the equation. And then at the end of this, you know, uh, this guy went over to Bill Patrick's house to talk to him and Ken Alibek. He says, we took a break just to, you know, take a break from the interview. And this is how these guys talk during their break. You know, Patrick squints east with a professional need to understand the nuances of wind and cloud. Uh, the wind, he's like saying the wind is, you know, gusting a bit 10 to 12 miles an hour. And he's, you know, assessing the wind. It's a good day for anthrax or Q fever. Okay. So I'm going to like, you know, what, how fast is the wind going? It's an anthrax day. These guys are insane. I'm telling you, they're nuts. I mean, isn't Bill Patrick, uh, is, am I remembering correctly that isn't he the guy that also, you know, he would bring vials in and do these little parlor tricks, but didn't he also bring in like a cartoon style, like garden plume thing and like blow spores into a room once and say like, if this was, it wouldn't surprise me that he probably did that. that. That's that's his, that's (laughs) that's his shtick. Sounds like his style. Yeah. Yeah, and then he uses business cards with the Grim Reaper and the yeah, sign yeah, says yeah, yeah. bioterrorism and they try and portray him as this like nice little old dude and he's just mental. He's mental. Uh-huh. 
Anyway, yeah, so Alabeca praises the weather the same way Patrick does. They're like the same. Patrick goes into his his garage and comes out with a fluffy powder. Um, it's uh, a stimulant for some weaponized brain virus. It's sterile. Uh, <laughs> you have this shit in your garage. You fucking. These are the guys that are like, anyone can make this shit in their garage. These guys probably make this shit in their garage. Because why do you have that stuff lying around in your garage? You know who literally did? Stephen Hatfield actually had yeah. a mobile biological weapons lab that apparently some of his army buddies in military intelligence got confiscated before the FBI was able to go look at it. Uh, that's according to the FBI. So Yeah. I mean, well, speaking of Hatfield, this is from an, an article in the uh, Washington Post about him. Uh, he was, was just talking about. That's the author of the book that um, says that the St. Petersburg letters was the impetus for going after him. Directly. Yeah. So Hatfield, there was a picture of Hatfield in a biohazard suit pretending to cook up germs in a saucepan. Um, Hatfield talked about how easy it was to be a terrorist and you could go on the Pentagon in a wheelchair and spray bioweapons on everyone. Um, <laughs> uh, he got, he first met some CIA quoted in this piece because he was surrounded. He went to a bar with bodyguards for, I think, uh, for Bandar bin Sultan of Saudi Arabia, who I think was the head of Saudi intelligence at 9-11, right? And anthrax attacks, if I'm not mistaken. That's normal. Wait, 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 He's wait, just wait. a Fort Detrick researcher. Well, so Hatfield was with there with the bodyguards of Bin Laden. Yeah, he went. He went. According to this article, he went to this bar all the time. A Charlie's place in McLean, Virginia, a favorite hangout for the U.S. intelligence community. He first shows up with bodyguards for. Bandar bin Sultan or Bandar Bush as he's called because he's one of the Saudi guys really close to the Bush family. I mean, so this, this he's part of like this deep whatever this deep state. Totally. I mean, these state. are the guys to look at with the anthrax attacks, not freaking Bruce Ivins. You know what he I mean? He sued the government for six million dollars in one. And like, he, so that, yeah. Wait, one more thing I want to say about Hatfield. Guess who ran his PR campaign for him? His lawyer is kind of sus too if you look him up, but. The guy who ran the PR campaign for Hatfield against, you know, whoever was trying to leak on him and throw him under the bus was named Patrick Clausen. Patrick Clausen, if people don't recognize that name, is it from like a viral video from years ago of like a neocon at like the, I want to say Brookings, saying that we need to do a remember the main style, like fake false flag attack to go to war with Iran. And everybody, I remember everybody on the internet was like, right. holy crap, this guy said this out loud. That's the guy who helped Hatfield go back against the media patrick clausen all right yeah great all right fun dude <laughs> um these are all fun guys so yeah anyway um takes this uh, stimulant for some deadly brain virus or whatever out of his garage that he randomly has this is all fine to put in the the new yorker uh and he puts the jar right under the author's face right a tendril of simulated bioweapon reached for my nose. The guy, the guy is like, in, who? he's a 70 year old dude. He's like, look, I have this thing. That's just like the deadly thing. And you use it to make the deadly thing. And let me put it in your face. Let me throw it in the table. I got it through security. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, I mean, he sounds fucking nuts. I wish there were videos of this guy. I really do. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> let's see. He walks across the lawn. He stands by a tree. He extends his arm and he throws the contents of the jar in the air, his stimula simulated brain virus weapon um, uh, shoots off into the wind, heading straight down a meadow and across the street, uh, booming with serenity toward Frederick, Maryland. Um, Alabek watches and 
tons of his secret, mildly amused, you won't see the cloud now. Um, and then Patrick goes, some of those particles will go 18 to 20 miles away. Um, the simulated brain virus would arrive in Mount Airy Ridge. I guess it's a town in less than two hours. He walked back and put his hand on Alabac's shoulder and smiled. Alabac nodded. What are you thinking? I asked Alabac. He pursed his lips and shrugged. This is not exciting for me. Patrick went on. Say you wanted to hit Frederick, Frederick, Maryland. Today, Ken, what would you use? Alabac glanced at the sky, weighing the weather and his options. I'd use anthrax mixed with smallpox. Nice. <laughs> okay, that's all. I, I I don't even. I think in the interest of time, we'll go. Uh, Here, I'm gonna, it'll I'm be gonna too much. I'm well, I was going to end I'll anyway. Right Can back. you wait? Or okay, oh, yeah. I'm gonna. I'll be like literally back in like thirty seconds. But continue talking. Okay, sure. So, uh, well, I was pretty much ready to <laughs> uh, wrap things up there, but I guess maybe I could look at the uh, the chat a little bit. If anyone has some uh, questions, feel free to shoot them in there now, and I'll uh, answer a couple if I can get it to load. Um, why Robbie's in the bathroom? If not, I'll just, uh, you know, conclude a little bit. Okay, there's only one question, and I'm – I. Uh, wait, is there even? Uh, nope, no questions. Guess not. <laughs> um, I could, I couldn't hold it any longer. I no, 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 don't worry about it. It's really fine. <laughs> well, I was gonna take questions from the chat, but it looks okay. like there, um, there weren't any. So okay. anyway, um, so yeah, these are the guys that were doing gain of function experiments for the Pentagon and also the CIA. The CIA one, I think, was called Clear Vision um, at Battelle um, that were involving a lot of people who not only stood to gain a lot from the anthrax attacks, but did, um, in spite of the fact that the official narrative fell apart. This, uh, I don't know, do these seem like normal people to you? Ah. Uh... Yeah, I mean, the kind of people you'd want in charge of gain of th function anthrax attacks for the United States. It's they look at American towns and they're like, well, yeah, I guess we'll hit them with anthrax and smallpox today. And, you know, the obituaries like, well, I had no problems of murdering tons of animals and thinking of people, horrible ways for people to die all the time. That was actually pretty great. Uh, it's insane. I mean, it, it's. I, I, it reminds me of some of the stuff that people pull out of like the people, you know, doing gain of function research now who have been sort of people pointing fingers out of, you know, possibly engineering COVID and things like that. It's like, but then another part of me is also thinking there was definitely some campaign here to set certain people up, it seems. But then at the same time, when you look at these people, they're so dark and deep state and suspicious and connected to all these weird things. Uh, I mean, Bill Patrick is you know, extremely, uh, yeah. evil. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, he seems totally off his, uh, off the rails. He's I mean, not is connected to some. That's just people. one article of Patrick just being like off the wall bonkers. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of material of that guy just being like, you're just like, what is this guy on dude? But Randy Larson and some of these other guys in the same network, like love to use his little, the same little, you can tell they, who they learned it from, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, but what's interesting about Bill Patrick, I think, is that he's at the center of a lot of the stuff. He has ties to, you know, Giuliani and, and Howard, 
in it, through the, the New York Office of Emergency Management bioterror response stuff for New York City specifically. He has ties to SAIC where Stephen Hatfield are working. He does the anthrax letter studies there. Jerome Howard. Mommy, we got some mushrooms. Oh, uh, uh, mushrooms. Ah, you got mushrooms. Good job. Okay. It's a mushroom season and she, thank you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, have a bucket full of mushrooms. <laughs> I guess you could, she's, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, that was cute. Um, yeah, but you have him also at SAIC. Uh, so Howard's there. That's a, another, you know, connection. And he had all these, you know, was going on media, dropping all this stuff about anthrax is going to come after 9-11 and, and part of this really shady network, part of Kroll and Associates at the same time too, right? And then Patrick's doing these anthrax studies, very relevant to what actually happens in the attacks um, for Stephen Hatfield at SAIC, right? And, uh, and then he's also at Patel doing this stuff without, I mean, he seems to be all tied up, like right in the middle of this. And he's the top anthrax expert that had the knowledge to make this anthrax that needed per experts, uh, you know, one of the top six people in the country for it had all these patents had access to the types of labs that he would have needed for that kind of experiment, like at Patel, um, had the connections. I mean, there's a, I mean, he seems much more sus to me than someone like Bruce Ivins does, oh, to be honest. 100%. And, and he just doesn't get uh, covered at all. Like when I wrote the series last year, I was like, I've never heard about Bill Patrick and anthrax, uh, but I feel like I should have. And even though the FBI, what's so weird is the FBI, apparently looked at him and 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 they claim that they he was one of those you know pool of people but i think what lends to your general theory here i mean from what i've found even recently just working in parallel not even talking to you about some of this stuff is that the hoax that happened to judith miller you know the fact that he was her mentor first of all is is important she was a key player obviously in in whatever this was the yeah. hoax was almost like a presentation that was visually like the Bill Patrick description. So the hoax letter did that. The real letter had the sandy substance that also matches up to another description that Bill Patrick was carried around these yeah. little sandy vials of stimulant. So all those things make me think that definitely something, someone, something here was tied to him. I think so there's that, something there. And yeah, I think the reason for suspicion in Hatfield was very warranted, but he didn't do it. But that's because he was a key part of the network, but not, they should have been looking at Bill Patrick and they suspected Bill Patrick from the very beginning. That's the crazy part. And all because of this apparent polygraph, I'd really like to know the circumstances um, of that polygraph test uh, that he took. Because, yeah, because if he's so, exactly. When when did they bring him in? Was he one of the, because like Ken Alibic, apparently they were looking at him very early on too. Like that was like one of the first people, I guess, that they, that was like, oh, if this is an inside job, you know, we're going to look at, we're going to talk to him. So I'm imagining it must've been very early on. And then they just gave him the clear, you know, maybe almost like as a formality, you're like, oh yeah, you're a, you're you're an expert sociopath. You're going to ace this. You're going to ace this polygraph, you know. And then it'll, and then we'll just write you off or something. I mean, I don't know, but it's uh, it's definitely yeah. curious and worthy of 
further examination like what exactly another thing i should bring up about patrick right i mentioned this earlier he is expressly the reason for the mass administration of anthrax vaccine to u.s troops Mm -hmm. all of those adverse events caused by that anthrax vaccine gulf war syndrome right can be traced back to this guy he is the guy to blame for all of that. That's insane. And so not only that, but you also have him being involved with Battelle, which teams up with the anthrax vaccine producer to save it, essentially, with the anthrax attacks. I mean, that vaccine's still being given to people, uh, even though the government says 85%. He knew this, and he's fine with like that happening uh, to, to US military, the people in the US military. Uh, and you can make an easy argument that that like deb- uh, weakens U.S. military readiness and all of that stuff by having that that high of an adverse effect um, amount uh, among a mandatory vaccine for uh, U.S. troops and stuff. I mean, that's nuts. I mean, this guy clearly doesn't give a flying F about uh, the well-being of, of any American. This is not like they describe people like Stephen Hatfield as being super patriotic. But look at his mentor. Does that seem patriotic to you? Respect our troops uh, type stuff? Uh, not to me, dude. And so I think also uh, Patrick knew that like if all this stuff about the anthrax vaccine and, and all of that were to actually fall apart and be investigated, uh, that he would actually take a hit. His credibility would take a hit because all of that stuff hinged back on his advice back to the, the Dick Cheney run Pentagon in the early 90s, Right. So he also has a motive to protect himself, um, in a sense, in the in the bigger scheme of of all of this. I think that's pretty. Well, yeah, I wonder. It makes me wonder. Um, because I mean, if he is, let's say, let's say he's a potential suspect. Let's just say that. Uh, that the fact that he died, you know, um, kind of complicates things. So it's like we gotta almost probably look at this as like how many of these other people are still alive still, and you know. Uh, I mean, I think Canalabek is still around, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Too, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think Mike Irish might have died. I'm not 100% sure if it's the same Mike Irish obituary that I found. But um, yeah, it seems like as far as the, all the potential suspects I've looked at, they're, they're the only ones who are dead. Everyone yeah, else is well, still alive. Uh, Dick Cheney's still alive. Ronald Donald Rumsfeld's yeah. not no, it, finally, right, uh, you know, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, I think Wolfowitz is still alive. Cadillac's definitely still alive. Like a lot of these guys seem to have been involved to some extent in, in, in a lot of fuckery and are still around. It can still be looked at. But now uh, the TV wants you to think it was all Bruce Ivan's fault. And, you know, we're 20 years after the fact. And, and this is really important because what happened with anthrax, like, the people that likely did this, the people we've been talking about, or at least if they didn't do it themselves, they know who did it. Mm-hmm. That's the terrorism, right? And in anthrax, it's really easy to show that because it's an admitted inside job. Uh, the the discrepancy is, you know, who was the insider that did it, right? Um, yeah. And I, so, I, think, I just think we need to be careful about making it seem like it's one person because, I mean, I... Yeah, I, well, I, the lone thing yeah. I think we already said plenty of times there's no yeah. way that was it, it was a network that did it um yeah. but the point is people in that network still have a lot of prominent uh positions today Robert Cadlick uh, was mm-hmm. the architect of the entire US government's COVID-19 response including the COVID-19 uh you know what uh, warp speed um and a lot of other stuff um uh, getting emergent biosolutions, for example, that did all this shit with the anthrax vaccine to be the manufacturer, for example, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, uh, they screwed up and contaminated millions of doses 
Um, and that came out in mainstream media. That should have been a scandal in and of itself. Cadillac has all these conflicts of interest with them as a company because uh, he helped bail them out uh, with the anthrax stuff. Right. So and then got rewarded for it later, got into business with them, consulted for them, um, among other things. You know, I mean, that's just hugely scandalous. It didn't get it didn't go anywhere. And that's because these people are are still protected today. But the point is, 20 years on. All of this stuff about anthrax is important is because the people most likely responsible still have a lot of pull in U.S. policies and politics. And, and you know, um, we're, we're being told to look over here at Bruce Ivins, but the people most likely involved, at least to some extent, um, still have a lot of pull and are making policy, even in, in the cases of people like uh, Cadillac, right? So uh, that's not good. And just a darker spin on that, I guess I'll say, is that let's just on a basic level say that the person who probably did it has expertise in bioweapons and they're still out there somewhere. And if they're, if they're willing to just kill, you know, five random people to make some kind of political point, then who's to say they aren't doing this again or still planning on doing it again. I mean, I, I just think that that needs to be factored in. It's like the, the, who clearly whoever did this is a very evil uh, group of people yeah. or person. So, um, and I don't think yeah. they were ever taught. So. <laughs> and a lot of these guys, you know, so I sort of went over some of the sociopathic stuff of, of Patrick and stuff and how he doesn't care about killing anything. Um, but people like Jerome Howard, too. I mean, you look at the New York Times stuff before 9-11 about his job at, at New York City. He's like, I spend all day thinking about creative ways for people to die horribly. And I am I'm obsessed with building collapses. And, you know, he built the office in Building 7 uh, <laughs> that collapsed on 9-11 in a free fall. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. There's a lot of these guys that just think like that. And Stephen Hatfield, if you look at some of the stuff he used to go around saying and bragging about and fantasizing about, I mean, even there's actually in another Washington Post article, uh, even Jerome Howard's like, yeah, Hatfield's fantasies were even too much for me. One time I told him not to say that stuff in front of other people, you know, like yeah. <laughs> they even yeah. out crazied each other. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, so I think, um, uh, it, it is really concerning when you consider the fact that the anthrax attacks, if it wasn't traced back to a domestic source so quickly, uh, I think was going to keep happening maybe, or would have been more severe or would have gone on for who knows how long, because there was a lot of stuff they tried to do back then, like total information awareness, um, the DARPA program, the big surveillance program that was justified by 9-11 had a big bioterror component. I mean, they could have, it was, there was a lot of pushback, but if the anthrax attacks had been bigger and worse and it hadn't been five victims and it kept building up over time, I think we could have seen th things be really crazy. I think they ended up going back to the drawing board because of what we mentioned earlier on about some people at the FBI actually cared about what was going on and weren't going along with the whole uh, shtick and we're going to blame this on Iraq guys, you know, um, yeah. there was, there was dissent to that. So they, they couldn't use it the way they had intended to use it. And if they had been able to do that, who knows what would have happened, dude. And so I think a big difference between then and now is that within the government and also within media, there's been a lot of consolidation mm -hmm. in, in, through censorship and firings. And, and just over that period of time that like this nastier faction I think has consolidated more control over those institutions uh, now than they did back in 2001. Um, and that is a concern to me. Well, I think one, one thing I just want to leave people with is that it could have been a lot worse. And I think you're right. If this kept yeah. happening, 
imagine what would have happened post 9-11 the mail system could have been like frozen or paused you know imagine if like twice as many anthrax letters went through they might the u.s government might say we got to stop the mail and then imagine all the hysteria and sort of panic that would cause and you know the infrastructure <clears throat> our postal infrastructure would shut down and i think that on top of that we're i think we're lucky that we didn't get like a heavier draconian form of mail surveillance where it's like any letter you send now we can just search it with for any reason like right now there is some you know on paper legal protection for like looking through people's mail you know they have to have some kind of probable cause i think i don't think they could just randomly search through packages but i mean after 9 11 if the anthrax attacks were worse than they were i do think we would have had like a you know digitally fingerprinted or everything monitored Everything has to be done through credit card, no cash transactions. Yeah. Well, no, those well, kind of things didn't takes, happen, luckily. It takes the invisible enemy thing to a whole new level, right? So that was sort yeah, of yeah. like the only narrative they could really get to stick after 9-11 was like mass suspicion of like Muslim Americans, right? Yeah. Imagine if it was like, you know, invisible spores hiding on your counter and all of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, that would have made made it a lot more invasive a lot more quickly. Um and yeah. uh yeah and i but I, the problem is a lot of the stuff they tried to do then uh, they couldn't justify arguably because anthrax didn't go the way they had planned and it, it essentially failed uh they have uh pretty much succeeded in doing over the past year and a half to some extent um yeah. some of the bioterror programs for the the total information awareness for example they did implement and it was cadillac that signed off on that mm-hmm. um <laughs> like the the wastewater detection thing um, putting all these sensors and sewers to detect um, uh, pandemics and bioterror events before uh, symptoms appear and all of that stuff. They tried to do a system like that after anthrax called BASIS in the mail specifically, and it was just full of false alarms um, and was, you know, allegedly created the panic it was intended to thwart. Before They knew that before it was installed, but they installed it anyway. But that type of sensor they tried to do massively all over the place in the U.S., create this panic, this climate of fear. And they're, they're setting that up uh, that now, and you can argue with the current climate of things, it might be a lot more successful now uh, than it was uh, back then. Uh, anyway, I don't really have anything else to add. I know we've been going a while, and you probably need to go. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, say to wrap it up? I have some... Uh, 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 mushroom, a mushroom picker <laughs> to congratulate. So <laughs> I, I probably the, only, to... the only thing I'd like to wrap or say is just that uh, I was looking at this sort of myopically before, and I didn't realize how much genuine crossover there is in gray air, or just like murkiness there is between bioweapons industry like Patel and these supposedly like environmental cleanup and sort of like remediation companies like Patel. One of their mo- you know most marketed things, if you look them up online, is that they do provide uh, water remediation, cleanup, you know, environmental yeah. detections. Of they hazards. contaminate and they do the cleanup. It's yeah. like, and a, then, <laughs> yeah. And then you look into more and more of that stuff. You're like, oh, there's a lot of crossover here. So like some of these, you know, friendly looking environmental companies, you know, you don't, you just don't know. They could also be bioweapons uh, or military contractors. And oftentimes they are. So that's all. That's all I want to say. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'd also add to that, you know, they're also involved a lot of these um, guys doing gain of function stuff or like, you know, um, also involved with like the vaccine industry, this whole medical countermeasures sure. thing um, and, and the strategic national stockpile. That's all Cadillac's bag. Um, 
And it's just a huge grift for these pharmaceutical companies that, for example, he was directly tied to, like Emergent Biosolutions and stuff. Uh, they get the biggest payout from that stuff all the time. Uh, and it's a grift that's kept them in business for a really long time when they're a hugely irresponsible company that's created really unsafe products for a really long time. Um, you know, I mean, that's not that that's not public health. OK, that's not public health preparedness. This is a grift. This is a racket in a lot of cases. Um, and it really needs to be investigated, especially uh, given current circumstances. Um, so there's a lot of conflicting interests here. And I think that makes the anthrax attacks a really important case study. And I think that's exactly why so many uh, uh, we're, we're told not to look at the anthrax attacks so much is because there's so much there that's so relevant to today. So. I guess we'll end it there if that's okay with you, Robbie. Thanks for uh, giving me uh, a lot of your time <laughs> and Thank you. Um, great for, for sharing your research. But I think, uh, you know, for people that are really interested in the nitty gritty bits of this um, event and not just, you know, it's, it's broader implications and overview stuff, there might be some new uh, threads for people to pull on. Uh, you know, this type of research is really a group effort. You know, uh, Robbie uh, and I sharing research. I mean, we learned things from each other uh, today that we didn't know before we did this video. And I'm sure there's people watching who may be able to pull on some of these threads uh, and find some interesting stuff. So, you know, if you're one of those people interested in digging deeper, uh, you're welcome to, you know, tag either uh, Robbie or I on Twitter if you find something uh, within that sort of came up from our discussion today. We would uh, love to see it because this is really you know, uh, open source intelligence, whatever you want to call it. It's like a, you know, this is really a group effort. Um, <laughs> you know, Robbie and I can only devote, we have a lot of other stuff going on uh, too. So we can only devote so much time to this uh, here and there. But, you know, the more we can suss out about what really happened on the anthrax attacks, you know, the, I think the better off we'll, we'll be about understanding, you know, its implications, uh, not just for the past, but to today as well. All right. Yep. And that could be as simple as just grabbing a public, document and someone's not even thought of yet like marine stevens sued Battelle. you know there's depositions that she gave can if you have access to those systems can you get those i don't i don't have access to them i don't know how to but maybe someone else out there listening can get a hold of that stuff so or the the saint petersburg letters maybe someone exactly. knows someone yeah. right so you know they're they're scrubbing stuff like i said earlier that uh that dark winter article from new york magazine talking all about uh, the how the dark winter authors they're meeting with Dick Cheney and all that stuff uh, that's only in Wayback Machine now it wasn't a year ago so they're taking stuff down all the time you find something cool make sure to archive it save it as a pdf or something uh, and share it around uh, and you know uh, like I said collective effort Woo! Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway uh, thanks a lot uh, Robbie and for everyone watching um, and Thank I you. hope you enjoyed uh, an unlimited hangout live stream don't do a lot of these uh, but, you know, uh, 20, uh, 20 years after Anthrax seemed uh, deserving enough. So uh, maybe I'll do it again. We'll see how uh, people liked it. So feel free to leave, uh, uh, you know, your, your comments about what you thought. If you'd like to see more of this on what topics, etc. in the comments, that'd be cool. And uh, thanks so much. <laughs>